All right. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are again with a new season underway here in the Patron Zone. Dom, today we are diving into Survivor Cambodia, and I am stoked to get into everything. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We are giving Survivor Second Chance a second chance, and this is new territory for us in one sense because this is the first season we are covering for a patron rewatch that we actually covered as well. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not. not. No. Uh, scratch that. <laughs> Reverse it. Uh, it's breaking new ground in being the second season, perhaps, that we are covering uh, now that we also covered in real time. But I, the real first that I think is worth highlighting is that, and bear with me here, this is... I think one of the most uh, distinct and unique kind of uh, run-ups to a season that we've ever had. And certainly in my my 20 years, or excuse me, 20 seasons of uh, watching the show live, you know, I came in at the, at the tail end of Heroes vs. Villains, which I imagine actually, and I'll defer to you on what the, the hype was like in advance of that season, but um, I, I come in as part of that, that wave of excitement for that season. And then uh, for the next... 23 seasons now i think in in all of that time span this is the most i've ever been kind of energized and confused but also excited and just so many things swirling around in my mind going into a season and even something like winners at war which that concept felt inevitable at some point and i was so jazzed that it was happening even that uh it felt a little more kind of predictable in one sense with this it was really all best off you had no idea who was even going to make it onto the show i uh, with a few you know you could pencil in some names but then uh, you had this whole scrum in the middle uh and then beyond that it was very difficult to really get any sense of how the season was going to play out and then uh getting those bits and pieces of information and then uh watching the season unfold live and dealing with the whole aftermath of that uh that was i think a that that stands out in all of the seasons I've been watching live and all of the seasons that we've been podcasting about it together, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And just for the official record, we have done this once before uh, with Kageyan, as Dom realized mid-sentence, and that was a lot of fun, so we are going to do it again here. Uh, giving a second chance, as you said, to Survivor Second Chance, very cute of us. And Dom, I think you're totally right that this pregame stands alone, as far as I would be concerned, within the entire history of Survivor, with the possible exception in my mind of the original survivor all-stars but that was in such a different uh just kind of era of the world frankly let alone just the survivor world that i don't think they're even necessarily that comparable uh, to quickly address the idea of heroes versus villains i certainly remember being very very excited for that season but in 2010 you know, a full decade in my survivor watching career into my survivor watching career, I still had essentially no one with whom to talk about the show. And it was actually heroes versus villains itself that cemented my initial kind of survivor fandom bond with great friend of the podcast, casual Anna. That was like the first time that I'd ever ah. really had. I, and it wasn't even her. So <laughs> I don't even know if I've explained this backstory before, uh, one of her very good friends in real life, who's also a friend of mine in real life, was the only other like Survivor super fan I knew. And in 2010, we were living proximity-wise very close to each other, so we would every so often watch episodes together. And Casual Anna would just like tag along, uh, and that's how she got like as into Survivor, if you want to put it in those terms, as she had. But Heroes versus Villains. As excited as I was, was certainly an entirely different kind of pregame 
experience and beyond just the kind of general fan enthusiasm i think there are several reasons that survivor second chance really stands out from the pack uh in terms of just the overall pre-game situation and that is entirely what we are actually here to get into today dom i i know it's not our first time going back uh and re-watching a season that we were there to cover in real time but i think although now that i'm saying it i don't even know if this is necessarily <laughs> true so i'm kind of doing the exact same thing you did here uh potentially this is at least one of the first times uh in any of our rewatch series that we are going to be dedicating an entire episode just to the pregame of it all uh and i'm i'm guessing anyone hearing our voice uh right now understands why and hopefully agrees that that is with good reason because i think this pregame is better than many survivor episodes if not seasons uh overall there is so much to dive into here and this season stands out for us personally as well because this was uh a season where we had these kind of uh personal professional relationships with some of the people who would end up playing on the season and also this is the last season where we had this great haul of these retrospective interviews afterwards we had steven we had spencer uh who I guess he goes by Ryman now. I think we should just go by Spencer, given that that was the case at the time, and that's how everyone knows him. But uh, no intention to dead name him there. Uh, and then also uh, your your darling Kelly Wentworth as well. Uh, like we actually got to get this understanding straight from the horse's mouth in a way that, and this was going to go on to be a recurring criticism, certainly by me, of the episodes in a way that we simply didn't on the season itself. And they were able to not just fill in those gaps, but do a great job of. Uh, telling all the important events in the game from their perspective too and i guess it's lucky for us that uh some of our, our horses in the race there they went far in the season right spencer is a losing finalist uh steven has this amazing arc uh on the show kelly comes oh so agonizingly close and then cements her reputation as this survival legend and we go on to play again uh as well and so in terms of just our engagement with it we had much more of a personal stake than we've had in maybe any other season as well oh absolutely yeah uh and there is a ton to dive into as far as the ballot goes, the pre-gaming goes, uh, a lot of things along those lines. Dom, in kind of uh, mentally preparing myself for this episode, I feel strongly that I want to start in one particular place, and that is with this. I believe that Survivor Second Chance is one of, if not the single greatest format in the history of the show. I think Second Chance itself deserves a second chance, a third chance, and many future iterations, because having people who know what it's like to be on the show are all on roughly the same footing going in, i.e. there are no like winners among them. No one's going to too aggressively, in most cases, kind of like stand out from the pack in either direction, and all of them are coming in with something to prove to themselves or to the audience with some sort of kind of axe to grind, potentially uh, something they want some sort of fulfillment on that they didn't get their first time. Uh, and additionally, I think having players where it is squarely their second time playing Survivor is going to most often lead to the recipe for success just tv wise overall as a season i love the 
second chance format. I remember as soon as we heard, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, although I don't have a clear memory of it, that Redmond was the one who initially provided the information to all of Survivor Twitter and Survivor Internet that this was the format they were going with. The ballot was going to be something that happened. Here are the candidates. Uh, I, I don't think it's a coincidence at all that all of those ingredients came together to make for, at least in my view, and I haven't rewatched this in a while, but I'll be surprised uh, if this does not remain the case when it's all said and done here with this rewatch. One of my favorite seasons the show's ever done. I remember feeling very conflicted about the season as it was airing in real time and thinking the raw material here it seems so great to me and it feels like we're only getting a, a tiny fraction of that and that felt very disappointing because the ingredients were there for a great season and we weren't being given those. I have not revisited that raw material and those ingredients in, what is it, eight years now? And so this is a season that I just, I did, despite having that personal stake and, and everything else, I just never felt inclined to rewatch. And so I'm excited to actually go and revisit it and see if it lives up to what I remember or lives down to what I remember. A little bit of both there. Um, but yeah, this is a season where I think the second chance formula really was shown off at its best. And uh, when you compare this to whatever like weird mishmash of people you had on Survivor Game Changers just a few seasons down the line here or some of the other returning player seasons that they've done, even though this mix is highly arbitrary, like I, I, I never thought I'd get to see either Stephen or Andrew Savage on Survivor again, let alone uh, them feuding with each other, even though you had this just strange eclectic mix from across the entire lifespan of the show, it felt more coherent in one sense than a lot of these other seasons have and it it is a season which makes or breaks reputations as well so uh there is an extensive list of uh two timers on this season who would go on to play for a third time so uh (laughs) jeff varner ignominiously um you know you had uh uh, sierra had a very brief appearance and then uh kelly wentworth and joe both in uh in edge of extinction uh you have how about jeremy uh, Jeremy, of course, yeah, our winner here, uh, coming back for, for Winners at War. And there are people who went out early who you could imagine if they made a second deep and uh, a deep run in this season and that left a, a, another big lasting impression, maybe they become three-timers and future greats of the show. So it did feel like a lot was on the line over and above just, well, the winner's going to get a million dollars and also everyone has something to prove here in their own way. Yeah, and returning to the idea of like seeing this theme again down the line. First of all, one of my absolute favorite things about this season that it's almost frustrating that they were willing to do it in basically this one case and no others is the pool from which they were drawing seemed to include any season of Survivor that had ever aired. And there was no, there was certainly some degree of recency bias, uh, in who made it onto the ballot and then who made it onto the final cast. And I'm happy to grant that that's going to play a role in pretty much any survivor returnee season. But the fact that we had people literally from season one of the show, season two, T-Bird was on the ballot from season three. We had uh, Savage from Pearl Islands. We had plenty of people from all sorts of eras here. I feel like any returnee season of Survivor would be doing itself a great favor to embrace that same philosophy. But even if we're not going to go that route, I think merely from new era seasons only, and at the time of this recording, uh, there have only been three of them, I think they could easily pull 
18, however, 20, however many they want, players from just 41, 42, and 43. And the issue I, would... Uh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think the issue would not be, do we have enough good candidates? I think the issue would be, we have so many good candidates that we're going to have to make well, some painful <laughs> cuts. But it sounds like you might disagree with that. Well, I, I know that you've been a big fan of just the, the general casting spread over the past few seasons. I think you... You're leaning into an extreme there, and I think the entire concept of a certainly a second chance ballot and maybe even a second chance season falls down when you have so many people who all played recently and many who played on the same season with each other. And that honestly is what the end game in this season ends up devolving into, right? Is you have this uh, San Juan del Sur contingent versus the Cagayan contingent, um, all of whom had played in the last you know year, year and a half at the time of filming, and so. I don't think that's a good thing necessarily, and you would want to dip back into the 30s. And if that's something we're allowed to do, if Jeff decides to acknowledge the fact that that entire decade of seasons, if you like, actually occurred, at that point, then, yeah, the floodgates are open and you could make a really deep, uh, promising cast of all second-chance players from that. I think one structural issue that would really directly collide with that now is the diversity requirement, right? Because uh, as of the 40s, CBS is committed to having... Uh, at least 50% are not my contestants on any of their reality programming. And I don't know if that is the natural outcome of a fan-driven ballot, to put it, uh, <laughs> yeah. to put it that way. And so there, there were ways you can fudge that. And there was the infamous uh, disclaimer on this ballot in Cambodia of the final say rest with CBS. And this is just an advisory, if you like. Um, it was later deleted. But I, unless you want to go as far as having like an explicit uh, kind of separate ballot by ethnicity which would raise its own uh problems then i, I think you would have to it, I, I, you would have to read between the lines and say yeah the fix is going to be in to some degree if only to meet this requirement which however sincerely or insincerely they are committed to upholding now i i see where you are coming from with that and i don't necessarily disagree uh i also want to just circle back to something you said about the influx of recent players making it into the end game of this season and potentially having a lot from Kagayan and San Juan del Sur playing into how all of this is ultimately going to go. I do not disagree with you. And I think in a perfect world, you're totally right that I, uh, it would be a much greater mix. We'd be casting a wider net than just 41 through 43 uh, could conceivably provide. I just, I guess I am, saying two things first of all if they wanted to do a second chance season from 41 through 43 i think they could fill it with an entertaining cast and i guess the point i'm getting at which is a completely unrealistic one and you're right to uh, calm me down a bit on it is i guess i'm kind of doing the math of if these people somehow did get hit with the men in black stick and forgot everything that happened on their very recent seasons i think it would be incredibly easy to have uh, a cast of people from only the new era go out there and play a compelling game but uh neither but there's, I, there's no pressure to do that right away right excuse me <coughs> no there isn't uh well okay, give me give yeah. me give me a second please <coughs> dying over here anyway i'll pick that up give me a second but I don't think there's any pressure to do that right now. And so if you waited until 46, 47, then I think you you could do that without spread of five seasons and you, you might be able to put it off. Um, you especially... absolutely could, by the way. I, it would just OK. I, OK. <laughs> yes. As far as I would be concerned, it would just lead to even more heartbreaking cuts. But you're you're probably the one 
uh, in the right on this issue. Okay, Dom, uh, let's get into how all of this pregame is going to go. And before we even get into like who's on the ballot and who's going to make the cut, is is my memory more or less correct that a lot of this was coming from Redmond and Twitter knew about this at least a little bit before it was officially announced? Yeah, I, I believe so. And I, I remember we knew that this reveal was going to be taking place at the Worlds Apart reunion show. And that implicitly was going to overshadow the finale where it felt like we all kind of knew what was coming and that was the only real acceptable outcome anyway, just given how the story of that season was constructed. And so we had mostly written that off and all eyes were on this announcement tucked away at the end of these are the people who are going to be leaving on this bus that we have in the parking lot and going to the airport to film a season. Um, and so that just overshadowed the entire kind of final stretch of the season. And there wasn't that much overshadowed by <laughs> yeah, the end, good. gotta say. Yes. Um, but yeah, all, all Twitter was talking about was you know, the latest information from Redmond and these other sources. And Twitter back then, I'm not going to say it was unequivocally good, but it felt a lot more tame in many ways uh, than Survivor Twitter, Reality TV Twitter, or just Twitter in general does uh, now. It, it, and it's like, this was in an era where I felt the urge to live tweet Survivor, which now I look back on and kind of cringe. I just always, like, I, I can't fathom wanting to do that again in the same way. So the entire culture around this activity, if you like, was different for me, different for a lot of people. Um, some in good ways, some in bad ways. But it, it, it felt like if you were to rerun that now, I, I almost dread to think of what the, the the kind of battle lines would be among the the Twitter stands and uh, you know the, the, all the different camps you would have going on. I just I think the entire landscape would look different. I agree completely, and I was thinking that at the risk of he- being hyperbolic here, Dom, which I'm always very nervous oh, about. No. I think the pregame for Survivor 31 might have been my favorite kind of time capsule point in all of Survivor Twitter, with the possible exception of finding out that Winners at War was going to happen. But before we knew that, like, Edge of Extinction was going to be back, it's like, to me... Fire Tokens, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I was excited about Fire Tokens before I saw the actual rule set. But for me, I really have... Maybe I've blocked some of them out, but I have nothing but fond memories of the early days of discussion about Survivor 31. And I feel like the Survivor Twitter community at large uh, was about as electric as it was ever going to get there. And I think Winners at War, that pregame, well, obviously very exciting, you know, finally having on our hands this season that the general idea of which had been certainly bandied about many, many, many times over the years of having nothing but champions come back to battle it out uh, and, you know, getting the black and white versus the color photos of like who was in the mix to to return was a lot of fun. Uh, and I certainly don't want to take anything away from that. But I really do think that like on the whole, at least as far as my memory of things is concerned, Survivor 31 pregame really was potentially the like all time highlight of Survivor Twitter. Uh, so let's get into how all of this played out. We initially get word that this is going to be the theme of the season. Here's what's going to happen. And at a certain point, it becomes clear that the way this is going to go is a ballot is going to be released with 32 candidates and 20 of them are going to make it onto the show. We have 16 men and 16 women, and we eventually get 
our final list and like the voting is open. And first thing I want to get into here, Dom, is the way that this voting worked and to table for the time being the fact that maybe this voting was irrelevant altogether, but it was at least a fun kind of mental exercise for the Survivor fans. Uh, the way it went is you had two separate ballots and when voting, you had to vote for exactly 10 of the 16 people on whichever ballot you were filling out. And it did not take Survivor fans long uh, and understandably so to recognize that, oh, under this rule set where I have to cast exactly 10 votes and I can't just put my favorite down and leave everyone else off and just have it be a net good thing for them no matter what. Survivor Twitter was very quick to realize, ah, so we are in essence voting for who we don't want to be on this season uh, because we're putting on more people on our ballot than we're leaving off. So people, even those who were like dying to have a Joe or a Spencer back on the season also had other favorites and they would leave Joe and Spencer off their ballot. I think I may have done this myself, uh, just knowing Joe and Spencer are a hundred percent to be back out there no matter what. So tactically <laughs> I would be much smarter uh, under certain circumstances to, and, yeah. and looking back, leaving Joe and Spencer off your ballot, probably a good choice. Once <laughs> yeah. All was done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are many things from this season, Dom, that I'm going to say have not aged super well. Uh, and neither Joe or Spencer may even be the number one uh, candidate there, but long story short, like it was, not only here are the ballots, go and cast your votes straight away. Survivor Twitter was like all over the idea of, oh, if I really want this person to be on the ballot, then actually I should be voting this way, even if it's not uh, my like top 10 most favorite people, uh, because it makes more sense in terms of who I'm leaving off the ballot. Like that becomes more important than who I'm actually putting on there. So that was a lot of fun to watch play out and watch these Stan armies kind of uh, organize and get the word out about like how to optimize your ballot if you really want this person to make the season. And then on top of all of the ballot discussion, Dom, uh, I thought one of the really cool pregame situations in the history of the show that certainly stands alone to this day. And I can't imagine it will ever be replicated unless there is some other season in the future that has some sort of like open pregame ballot situation as well is the contestants with a couple of exceptions, uh, were going on with Rob on RHAP and like making their case to the voting public. And that was very cool and very fun as well. And, and even us, uh, very briefly, friend of the show, PG Law, um, made an appearance. And uh, yeah, we, we got to dip our toe in that ourselves. But th this was also uh, the first real test of just how big and influential the superfan community would actually end up being, right? Because the community itself had grown over time and lots of new people were coming in. And I think the excitement of this concept had drawn back in some, some laps. Survivor fans, people who were there for the old days and were just thrilled to have a chance to actually see Kenny Wentworth, or excuse me, Kenny Wigglesworth, <laughs> Freudian slip there, are back on our screen again. Um, but th there's always been the sense of, well, the mass is out there. If, like, the worst thing that could happen would be for the show to give in to the Russell Hansers of the world and make some part of the show up for a public vote. And to the extent that the show 
did offer you that, well, this is the the fan base, the not so silent majority that delivered you fan favorite Jane Dry and fan favorite uh, Lisa Veldrew and so on and so forth. And so there was also this sense of trepidation that, well, if if this is an open and democratic process, oh my God, what's going to happen? Because the 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 fan favorites who you know we as our hap listeners and patrons we love Stephen Fishback. Do the people out there even remember or know who this guy is? And so uh, it's, it, for some of those more uh, obscure people or the people who could not rely on that, that wellspring of public support, then it really was up in the air as to who would actually make it on. Yeah, and I do think Stephen probably may have even been surprised that he was getting a, a second shot on Survivor. And I obviously don't know any of this to be true with certainty, but it wouldn't shock me, to say the least, if his being in the mix for this season was overwhelmingly because of RHAP. And I I think this was the first season where uh, the influence that Rob in particular has on just the survivor internet at large really became abundantly clear and has obviously not slowed down uh, to, to any degree over the years there. Uh, but certainly I was one person who was thrilled to see Stephen back on the ballot and, and make it on there. Although I know I was by no means alone along those lines. Uh, Dom. And, upon... and, ju- and just, just on that quickly. Um, so there was this divide between this, however small or big group of really enfranchised and dedicated super fans. And then just the, the audience out there at large and the, the format for this vote was it was effectively or it was effectively like the the bb all-stars uh kind of uh build-in vote or uh very similar to how like american idol and and other shows did it too where you could vote multiple times and you could vote uh so i think it was capped at like once per 24-hour period although some people found creative workarounds for that uh but basically if you were dedicated you could be hitting the phones every day and like trying to drum up support for your people Uh, and so even though we all understood, yeah, that the number of people who know and care who Stephen Fishback is, is much less than the you know 50 million people who saw Kimi Kappenberg every week on TV back in 2001, that that smaller group is also much more vocal, much more dedicated. They will be voting. They will be voting every day and will be more strategic in how they vote. And will that be enough to cancel out whatever this like seeding mass of public opinion is uh, over here instead? You saying that, just you know the idea of like gaming the system potentially and finding workarounds for voting more often for whatever reason was like the first time i think i'd ever really considered the idea of like the candidates themselves trying to find workarounds and i know semi-famously andrew savage like took out ad space on the cbs.com survivor page and i think was probably greatly uh aided by being jeff Probst's like hero <laughs> for many years leading up to this and probably felt but, better I mean, baller move honestly to buy that ad space and if oh, you if not you're only making that ad... uh if you're making that silicon valley uh ceo money yeah absolutely do that because you'd be a fool not to i mean not only the ad space but when you put it in those terms it just popped into my mind the idea of savage like finding some warehouse full of low the kind of like entry level aspiring silicon valley types to just <laughs> cast ballots for him all day like the like veruca salt's dad from willy wonka just like ripping yes. open trying <laughs> to get the, the, the golden ticket there and, uh, and hey, if you're if you're not doing that you don't want it enough frankly absolutely not yeah uh so 
let's get into how all of this was looking once we saw the names that were on the ballots, because I think one of the coolest and potentially kind of most important elements in terms of how hard the contestants were campaigning and drumming up engagement on Twitter, which I'm sure CBS liked a lot, is as far as I was concerned, and I think if they're being honest, as far as most of them would have been concerned, the two people who I thought stood out as just very clear, literal 100.0% locks, they are going to be on this season, were, as mentioned already, Joe and Spencer. I think it was impossible that either of them would miss the cut, but I think they were essentially alone in that tier and everyone else who was on this ballot had to at least some degree sweat it out here i think there were plenty of others and, who were very high likelihood like, like cass shireen sierra i think uh stand out as it'd be pretty surprising for them to miss but i don't think any of them could go to sleep the night before knowing with full confidence i'm about to go out for this season yeah and you have this uh almost tragically endearing or endearingly tragic moment at the end of the reveal where Jeff comes to the last row and it's Joe and it's Spencer and it's Brad Culpepper and two <laughs> out of three of you guys are going to make it on and Brad is already preemptively congratulating them, patting them on the back and Jeff says, you know, Brad, for once you are right about something. Joe, it's you. Spencer, it's you. Get up on that stage. And it's so weird to look back on that scene now knowing what would become of Joe and of Spencer and that Brad would come back to play Survivor again and be more successful than either one of those on their three combined return appearances. Yeah. Uh, so once we got our list of the 32 candidates, Dom, we did something that we actually had an opportunity. I don't know what was in the air right around 2015, 2016 or so, but we had a, several different seasons uh, around that time where we got to do auction drafts like knowing who was going to be on the season but not knowing how it was going to go and who would even necessarily make the cut in this case uh and we had one of our great friends uh since the inception of this podcast and even before the inception of this podcast come on and we did uh an auction of all 32 people that were on this ballot and we had to be waiting it was a must-win auction so the only thing that was relevant was who drafted the eventual winner of this season. But we did this without knowing who was even going to be, be making it on to the season in the first place. So we were combining not only win equity if on, but also just sheer equity to be on the season in the first place. And I pulled up the spreadsheet. Uh, shout out to Google Drive for keeping all of this intact for me, unlike, incidentally, uh, the podcast itself, which unfortunately, Dom, uh, was hosted on our old podcast host. I tried to pull that up the other day and was in, unable to get a, a working player on that. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can dig through some of my like old hard drives and find it sometime soon. Uh, but we had some pretty interesting results here from how that auction ended up going that I thought would be fun uh, to, to flag back up. However, you know, seven, eight years later, uh, Dom, the most expensive player in that auction, and I should say this was unlike uh, the other auctions that we did, which were kind of uncapped uh, in terms of how much money you could spend overall or on any different player. In this case, I think this might have been the literal first one we did if not very close to it. And we just did a set budget of 
200 auction dollars for each of me, you, and Kaz. Uh, the highest cost player in the uh, Survivor 31 pregame auction was actually friend of the podcast, Stephen Fishback, who, as much as we love Stephen, it seems like Koss loved him even more. Koss spent 80 of his 200 auction dollars on Stephen. He also then spent 71 of his auction dollars on Tasha, so really went essentially all in on those two. Dom, uh, your highest most expensive player, I guess I should say, was actually the young lad, Spencer Bledsoe, who went for $60. And all of those, I would say, actually, in retrospect, not crazy overpays. They all went fairly deep into the game and gave themselves some chances. Uh, unlike. To, unlike, yes, thank you. My most expensive player, I spent 61 auction dollars on T-Bird. And I will say, Dom... As funny as that may sound to you and the others sitting up on your cloud of judgment, looking down on me and my plebeian takes, I fully stand by it. I have no regrets whatsoever about spending 61 on (laughs) T-Bird. Yeah, and I think uh, T-Bird's someone whose reputation has really only grown with time, and now, looking back, even more people than in 2015 uh, are sad uh, and upset that she didn't make it on at the time. Yeah, uh, another perhaps uh, unfortunate pick here for me. I spent 43 auction dollars on Jeff Varner. Whoops. Uh, And then, Dom, I thought, interestingly, you spent 35 on Shireen. And that obviously, you know, seeing that she's going to be the second person eliminated from the season doesn't necessarily look good on paper. But I don't think that's a crazy overspend or anything close to it. Uh, in the grand scheme of things there. So just wanted to apologize for you uh, on on that one. And then, Dom, we get to Value City over here. And if you remember anything about how these auction drafts used to go, uh, Value City was basically where I lived. I got my girl, Kelly Wentworth. I don't know if this is necessarily a Value City pick. Uh, it was certainly laughed at in the moment. I spent 32 on Kelly Wentworth very unsure about whether or not she would even make it onto the season, but I'm sure we have a lot uh, to unpack about what I was thinking about Kelly Wentworth prior to seeing her on this season along the way during our podcast coverage here. And don't want to step on too much of that just yet. And then Dom, our eventual winner, again, bearing in mind, there were 600 total auction dollars in play here. Jeremy went to me for $10, which still seems crazy. Yeah, I was not a believer in Jeremy coming out of uh, 29, and he made me into a believer on this season. And then Winners of War almost kind of pushed me back towards the middle again. That <laughs> pendulum, uh, you know, kept on swinging. But uh, yeah, I, I was too low on Jeremy coming out of 29, although I think I had I had my reasons, whether or not they were good ones. I will leave his exercise to the listener. And then, yeah, I think he really... Uh, stunned everyone with how impressive his performance was in this season. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dom, I was reading the Wikipedia for this season and particularly about how the pregame shake shook out. Uh, and I found something that maybe I knew in the moment, but certainly had forgotten about. And I thought it was interesting. So I'll share it with you and the listeners. Now uh, there's actually a list of people. I'm not sure what the source is here that were apparently contacted and declined the opportunity 
to be on the ballot. I'm assuming this came from some interview with Jeff Probst somewhere along the way. But uh, some fun names here that would have been good to have in the mix. Unfortunate they said no, but I'm not super shocked by any of them. Uh, first of all, Greg from Borneo. I know an all-time kind of cult classic fan favorite, certainly one of mine. Uh, would have loved to see him back, although I don't know how realistic that ever was uh, going to be in terms of his interest level. Ian from Palau, I love finding out that they were willing to ask him uh, and totally respect his decision to say no, but thought he would have been certainly good to have in here as kind of one of those early middle era representatives, if not just outright early uh, representatives at this point. Shambo said no. Jeff Kent said no, I think for pretty obvious and understandable reasons. And then RC said no, which surprised me, considering I think it's pretty common knowledge that she was actually out there on location to do the original Blood versus Water season with her dad and only got interrupted on that because he had some sort of medical condition that at the last minute they decided to not put them out there on the season because only because of that, as far as I know. And that is why Candace and John Cody ended up on Blood versus Water as kind of a last-second replacement there. Uh, so any of those names jump out as anything you remember hearing about Dom? Cause that, that to me seemed like totally out of thin air. Yeah. I think I was vaguely aware of, of some of that. There's always this uh, case with all star seasons of everyone says that they got a call and then the, the pool of people who were actually in the mix to come back is considerably narrower. There was a time where it, if depending on whose account you believe, Mike Scoopin was going to be on every single season of Survivor. And uh turns out he was on two, and that may have been too, too many uh, once all was said and done there. So I, you never know how much to believe with these things, but I think in this case, you can maybe give it more credence than you would with the average, you know, you know, 46 different people were in the mix to return for Heroes vs. Villains or what have right. you. Yeah, and don't worry, Dom, on the Mike Scoopin front, we, we will have our uh, Survivor Australian... Uh, Survivor Australia representative here humiliating themselves and probably wishing they had just let their initial reputation remain intact. Uh, and then additionally, you mentioned Brad Culpepper being there, and that's a very funny moment. I had forgotten uh, that he was even on the ballot until I saw it. And then, of course, remembered that legendary kind of slow roll needling by Probst there uh, where he had him essentially announced to Joe and Spencer that they had made it and he had not. And then to, until seeing it on Wikipedia, I had no memory whatsoever that Troyzan was on this ballot. But that's another name that uh, is certainly going to come up again later in the kind of chronological run of Survivor and continues to baffle me that that is a name that, that came up later. Uh, Dom, let's get into the results of these votes, if you want to say that the votes were what was relevant, although I have my own questions slash suspicions about that. But there were definitely some surprises when we show up to that Worlds Apart finale. And finally, after two and a half hours of watching Mike Holloway do the happy dance, I get to find out who's going to be on this next season. Uh, the number one biggest surprise, I feel like, had to be Shane Powers, right? Do you disagree with that? Uh, I think that was the the most kind of a jarring omission for a lot of people, but it doesn't totally shock me. I don't know. A, again, even though he's a very vivid character, how many people have a vivid memory of Shane Powers, who isn't a 
Survivor fan who has a vivid memory of every single one of these people. Uh, and also, I don't know how many of those people who do remember Shane liked what they remember. Uh, very polarizing character. That is kind of the point, right? You cast him for conflict and because he is uh, tweaked out of his mind and is going to give you uh, these like funny, if a little disturbing uh, moments. But would not shock me if the the kind of a family-friendly audience that Survivor would later be explicitly marketed to uh, didn't like what they remember of Shane and decided not to vote for him on those grounds. So I certainly see where you're coming from along those lines. And I would say I think a very compelling case can be made that T-Bird missing was also a pretty big surprise in the minds of a lot of people, perhaps in the minds of someone who had just spent 61 auction dollars on her. Uh, there are certainly other considerations uh consider like other candidates one could consider as surprises for many different reasons to either make it or not make it but to i guess my memory is when shane didn't make it that was the moment for me that it felt like you could kind of feel the tension in the room just through the tv and maybe it was because everyone was nervous that they were now about to get murdered at some survivor after party or whatever uh but shane and t-bird missing it I would say were the two most like jarring, uh, jarring slash glare. Okay, jarring slash glaring, aka jarring omissions of the evening for me. Uh, at the same time, I, I mean, I, I would say as well. I am glad that Shane missed out on the season. As my, as much as he might have been fun in small doses on TV, if he could control himself, I don't know if mentally he was fit to go out there. Certainly initially, but also here in 2015 as well and just from what i've seen of him across the years i i don't know what my tolerance level for shane powers actually is and i think that it's very easy to imagine like things going wrong on the season involving shane powers in a way that it maybe is not for a lot of these others who after the show maybe did not do themselves any favors but who were at least able to keep it together out there on the island i totally agree with that for the record and i know that uh that's potentially going to be an unpopular take i know there were a lot of people who would have loved to have shane on this season but i am very much on board with your side of that and not only because of the just kind of general chaos surrounding shane 24 7 and what may or may not happen uh if people cross him and if they're apartments that may or may not be shitty in la might be getting uh raided and broken into but additionally shane powers and i promise we're not going to spend too much longer on the shane powers side of everything we have plenty of other things to get into i uh, shane as far as i have ever been able to tell is barely a gamer when it comes to survivor i feel like if shane had made it onto this season he would have just been another person in kind of the andrew savage mold of get my group stick with it that's it no second guessing buy on strong nothing else to think about uh and i don't think that's what this season kind of spiritually was about uh so no this this was maybe the worst season to have that old school mentality on because this is where we almost officially move into post-modern survivor where we have trust clusters and voting blocks and the idea of just an alliance or loyalty seems almost laughable by the end of things and so uh yeah if shame is going to be on any returning player season this would maybe be the worst one for him to just like stumble into uh as first totally yeah uh and then on the side of at least relatively surprising people who did end up making the cut here. 
you know, I was very much rooting, of course, for Kelly Wentworth, my girl, uh, to make it on. But I certainly wouldn't have been surprised if she ended up missing. Uh, likewise, PG was someone I was very happy to see back and get another opportunity, but it wouldn't have blown me away if she had missed the cut. Uh, Kelly Wigglesworth, I think, probably had a pretty significant upper hand being the only person from the literal first season of the show, but I don't think anyone would have been that surprised if she had missed the cut. And then certainly Monica Padilla, I know was like a very trendy kind of like Amber Burkich in all stars sort of preseason winner pick, especially when she ended up making it onto the final cast there. But I don't think anyone could look you in the face and say that they would have been blown away if she had missed it either. And then over on, uh, the men's side, I think there were probably some similar cases there, like Jeff Varner uh, was someone who, again, in the moment, in the year 2015, before we had seen him on Twitter to speak of, uh, or seen him on Game Changers, of course, to speak of. I think Jeff Varner was someone who was like an immensely popular kind of fan favorite, would love to see this happen if it were realistic, but it seems unlikely that he's ever going to get the chance. And then he pops up on the ballot here. I think a lot of people were pleasantly surprised by that. And then I was certainly thinking that one of Savage or Terry would make it on. Uh, I did not think that they would both make it on in too many timelines. And that was very surprising to me as well. Yeah, I assumed that Terry would make it on and the Savage was probably on the cast and probably would not make it in. That said, I know that given you know his connection with Jeff, if there was any uh, I- invisible hand of God working his way through the system, then what would have done some stuff in his favor. And then also he put on, as we mentioned, one of the most uh, assertive, proactive campaigns of anyone out there. And maybe that bore fruit as well. I was not surprised that Kelly Wigglesworth made it on. I mean, she is from that first season, which basically everyone tuned in uh, to. And then most people uh, never watched the season of Survivor again. But I think if you remember Survivor at all, you remember Kelly Wigglesworth. That said, she looked different enough by the time this ballot came around that you could be forgiven for just missing her at a glance if you're scrolling through the, the that uh, list on the website. But uh, yeah, if you remember who Kelly Wigglesworth is, I think you want her on. And so in that regard, um, you, you mentioned Kimmy Kappenberg maybe being a surprise over T-Bird or just in her own right. Remember, though, that Australia was the most watched season of Survivor and was a TV phenomenon in its own right. And so anybody from Australia, uh, maybe literally anybody, I think, would have been in with a decent shot there. And going back to the, to the original All-Stars and the, the Amber Burkage of it all, that season had uh, more Australia representation, I think, than any other season because that was the Super Bowl of Survivor going up against the Super Bowl. That that was uh, the the entire joke there. I believe it is now the case that half of the Survivor Australia cast has eventually come back to return to play a future season, and that is without Elizabeth ever coming back. And I think that's because she got too big to come back to Survivor. So, like, we, I think, very nearly... And who knows what the, what the future has in store, but like that cast, I think you you are totally right that all, people from that specific season are playing at like an extreme upper hand, given the general popularity as it was airing and just the ubiquity surrounding that season uh, overall there. Uh, nothing else really popping out to me at this point about the candidates and the ballot and who made it on and surprises along those lines although i would say my final thought about just the group from which they pulled to i know i've already made this point once but uh to kind of double down on it 
man, is it incredible what can happen when you pull from the full spectrum of Survivor seasons. And it's like painful to me to think about how good some of the other returnee seasons could have been had they been willing to go that direction, like game changers, if they've been willing to pull from Vanuatu and Fiji and, you know, take your pick. Uh, that could have been a completely different season instead of the obvious punchline that it is these days. I think blood versus water for as good of a season as it is, I think suffered immensely from the recency bias. Uh, Kara Moen, Likewise there, I, I really wish that we had more than just this one season and then winners at war to point to in terms of their willingness to really go back into the well. And I think, frankly, even winners at war was pretty oversaturated with people from the more recent seasons there. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say that uh, players from the early era of Survivor, and that is a very loose term at this point, 40, 44 seasons in now. I think they may be the best returnees. I think you get the best of both worlds in terms of these are people who have played Survivor before, are committed to Survivor, love the experience, want another chance, want to get another bite of the apple, uh, but who so much time has passed and the, the game has changed so much that getting to see them again in a new context, you are effectively watching a different person play Survivor. And this was true of Kelly Wigglesworth in the season to an extent. And it's one of the tragedies of the season that it felt like she was just just kind of there and neither had to acclimatize to the way the game has been playing now, but was also not really the Kelly Wigglesworth that you remember from season one who made such an impression back then either. She was just, just there, just a person who is on the season of Survivor. Um, if you can avoid that, then I think that players from that era, like they are what you want out of returnees. And so I would almost want to see a season of, you know, 20 returnees from that time frame of Survivor almost being edited and treated like a new player season, but like not to their history, but just letting them uh, play out organically after that. Yeah, there there is certainly uh, a degree of variance to that sort of thing. Not only Kelly Wigglesworth, uh, like Eric Reichenbach kind of stands out to me, not to fire shots at Eric on, you know, needlessly. I was a, a Eric fan the first time I saw him, was happy to see him back. And Dom, you know, we just rewatched Micronesia. It was a complete treat. And Eric was... Uh, a pretty big part of what made that season so fun. Maybe not the biggest part, uh, but he, he certainly played a vital role there. I think you will, uh, from time to time, run into people who, for one reason or another, and maybe it's just because of how the episodes ultimately get edited, you do come away with that kind of sense of, uh, they were kind of just there on this season and maybe a bit of a letdown uh, compared to what the ceiling case might have been, but I think generally speaking, you know, I already touched on the idea of it being someone's squarely their second time playing uh, and having not won and having some sort of thing to prove to themselves or others in their return appearance, I think is a immensely valuable uh, kind of returnee profile for any season of Survivor. I also think, though, to kind of uh, expand on what you were getting at. People like Kelly Wigglesworth or from anyone from just way back in the day who had always loved the idea in theory of potentially returning to Survivor, but had written off that being like a realistic possibility long, long, long ago. I think those people could very regularly make for compelling returnees. Jeff Varner, notwithstanding. Uh, OK, yes. so let me ask you this. 
in the world where we do end up getting another season whenever it ends up being that is a second chance format and i I, i've come around i am with you that i I would like to hold off on this even knowing that it's going to mean a lot of kind of heartbreaking snubs from the final list dom would you want it to be another ballot situation or would you just want the producers to straight up pick so with all the the caveats that we gave i think that maybe they would have to pick and i think i might want them to pick as well and i i I am not one and i don't think you are either to just put our wholehearted faith into uh the the survivor producers or the casting team and actually that distinction is worth touching on for a second because i think shane really epitomizes this where uh casting and certainly in the lynn spillman era has always had to think for shane production and specifically jeff probst who shane has had some choice words for across the years has not and i think it's is is interesting in general when you get this kind of discontinuity between those two central halves of uh of the show but i think that i'm trying to think just running down on a few names quickly like who are you thinking there are people who would make it on if it was a fan ballot versus a production ballot and wouldn't otherwise or vice versa here yeah uh, i am thinking of essentially I feel like I would probably have more faith in the fans to select a better cast, frankly, than I would in the producers of the show. But my ultimate conclusion was going to be, I don't think it frankly matters that much because uh, as I alluded to a little bit earlier and will just bluntly state right now, I am not of the opinion that the people we wound up seeing on this season were the 20 people who actually got the most votes. Okay, let's get uh, get into that then. Well, I, I mean, I don't think there's frankly like a ton to be diving into here, but the even acknowledging what an upper hand people from Australia had, I really do not, I like I can't talk myself into the idea that the voters who remembered the early days would not ever i'm I'm very eager to grant there are probably tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people who would vote for kimmy over t-bird but like i have to imagine the overwhelming majority if presented with the choice of kimmy or t-bird would pick t-bird of, of the people who remember both of them from their first time i think both savage and terry making it i'm i've can't conclusively say that that's you know rigged and uh stop the steal or anything along those lines but like i think savage is on this season because other than boston rob he is the person that jeff probst has just fallen in love with the most over the maybe julie berry uh could be another exception to that but you, you I, would hope so yeah. i would hope so but i i let me just to more coherently attempt to at least make my point here let me just pull up the cast here i i, I don't know necessarily that for instance, uh, as I'm desperately scrolling through here, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm going to be able to. It just seems strange to me. Some of the particularly like earlier season people making it on over some of the others. I uh, that feels a bit off. Uh, and additionally, as you flagged up, I think Shane and the words that he has had for the producers over the years could have very conceivably turned him from someone who did easily clear the benchmark as a top 10 vote getter to miss the final cut. 
I think that going back to the the Kimmy and Tebow thing, and I, I don't think there's too much more to get into here, but I think it is just more people watched uh, Australia than watched Africa. Most people who were so keen to see players from that era back voted for both or neither. I don't think many people were like splitting the difference there, if at all. And then I maybe I I, I struggle to think though. Okay, if you're a producer, kind of getting your hands dirty and rigging this ballot. Why would you want Kimmy over specifically T-Bird? And it's like, I, to me, you, you kind of, how should I say this? I think that it, certainly in the super fan imagination, T-Bird occupies a much more prominent place and they have much more vivid memories of her than the average person who saw T-Bird on Survivor Africa does. And so if you ask the understandable question of, uh, well, why would they... Uh, choose Kimmy over T-Bird, I think the answer there is kind of the same in that, well, yeah, I mean, Kimmy is just a, a bigger character who is going to offer more to the average season, if only to be this kind of flame out who has a few good episodes, goes out early, and then the real fan favorites get to take over. Yeah, and to clarify, I, as usual, am basing my take on pretty much nothing. I can't conclusively state any of this. I just... You know, knowing what I know about Survivor producers would would frankly be surprised if these were actually the top 10 vote getters on each of those two ballots there. Let's get into the actual accusations around that that have been leveled by someone who was on that ballot in uh, Max Dawson, because uh, he has very vocally been disenchanted with the show for some time. And uh, this is from a. Uh, his Reddit comments, uh, Max spills the tea on the second chance ballot. So uh, I'll read this off quickly. Someone who I really trusted and who had worked for the show told me a few days before the reunion that one, I was a lock to make the cast. Two, it wasn't really a true fan vote. And three, I was specifically put on the ballot so that I could be an early boo and the production darlings would stick around longer. The day before the reunion, I confronted casting with what I had heard and threatened to withdraw. They talked me down, but even as I was sitting there in the audience, I was seriously considering not going, even if I made it on. I was convinced Bullshit. if I made it on... <laughs> but, well, yeah. Yes, yes, but I was convinced if I made it on, the fix was in, and that the whole thing was a setup. To be honest, I still don't understand why they asked me, a fifth boot with a handful of confessionals and a really shit boot episode, to be on the ballot in the first place. It felt like I was being trolled. Like, why ask me to go through the fan vote after you've given me a big-time humiliation edit? Was Drew Chrissy unavailable? I was also relieved because I got to avoid playing on a season that everyone was predicting would be rough on the castaways. I'd already heard about the staff and MRSA disaster during Code Wrong. I'd heard about how returning player seasons ruined friendships and broke people. A couple of good friends came back from 31 Change, and not in a good way. One of them told me I dodged a bullet and that the experience had almost ruined Survivor for him. I really do believe I dodged a bullet with that one. Survivor was an important experience and remains a huge part of my life, but I'm happy to say that once it's enough. So... I also call bullshit on I was seriously considering not going, even if I made it on. But it's an interesting uh, story here. So he, he later says that the fact that he didn't make it on reassured him that the ballot itself was genuine and there, there wasn't that kind of fix. Maybe there was some other fix that he wasn't privy to. But um, so it, it, an interesting story to try and make sense of somehow. I do believe that there's a certain amount of cannon fodder here on this ballot. I love Jim Rice. You love Jim Rice. He was our first ever interview. We'll always be grateful to that. Was hoping he would make the ballot. I don't think they thought that he was going to make it on to this ballot. And I think that by carving out some space for the Jim's Rice and the uh, Troy Zans, whatever his actual surname is, um, you know, they 
they realize that, okay, well, that is guaranteeing that, you know, we already know the Spencers and the Joes will make it on. This maybe is making it more likely that the Andrew Savages and whoever is in that middle tier is going to make it in as well. Right. I, I think uh, Jim, Max, at this point in time, probably Brad Culpepper, certainly Troy Zan, and then Mike Holloway is officially on this ballot because it's being released before the Worlds Apart finale has aired, but obviously he's not going to be able to go out there one way or the other as a former winner. I think, frankly, a lot of people across both ballots were largely put on the ballot, Dom, for the exact reason you just laid out. They were put there to not be voted in, to make the other people that they, meaning the producers, were more inclined to have on this season much easier to vote for. Then if it's, you know, 16 banger candidates, a lot can be up in the air. And I don't think that is a conspiracy. I think that is just logical thinking, honestly, on the part of the producers there. And maybe you debate some of the edge cases of who those people actually are. But I, I think by and large, that part makes sense. As for the the more uh, surprising elements of that, um, I, I don't know. I think that the story of All Star Seasons has, has been that the cream very much is not right to the top. And you look back at the original All Stars, right? It's you look at the the final six, the final seven of that season. It's all the people who would n- would not have been at the top of the the fan favorites list or the most prominent characters coming into the season. You know, uh, Amber famously winning in encapsulating that, but like Jenna Lewis, uh, Boston Rob himself, despite what he would uh, go on to become, uh, Shean, uh, like it, it's a murderous row of people who no one would put on the murderous row. Um, and li- likewise, Micronesia even, right? We were saying this, uh, wrapping up our Micronesia coverage, for as much as Poverty Now is like maybe the most uh, up there with like Sandra and Saria's most iconic women uh, in the history of the show and uh, has gone on to acquire this like Black Widow femme fatale reputation. At the time it was, oh, well, I guess that makes sense. No one cared about Poverty coming in. And so, yeah, of course she was going to win. That That's how these seasons work. Big Brother All-Stars, Erica versus Bookie in the finals, right? Like, it, this is the pattern that these shows tend to operate on. And so you, you can try and uh, have this uh, this wheeze of, okay, well, we're, we're going to cast Max Dawson so that he can be the fourth boot. Max Dawson's going to win that fucking season. Yeah, we really have this <laughs> yeah I, mean, I mean, I think it is one of a, you know, an endless list of testaments to the idea that Survivor, Big Brother, whatever reality competition show you want to talk about along these lines is very much uh, like primarily a game that revolves around threat level mitigation. And it's a completely different formula when on a returnee season, people like, for instance, those who many of those who went out early on the original survivor all-stars entered the game with their threat level already like maxing out. Like it is uh, a completely different situation when people are going in and very fairly and correctly in most cases making assumptions based on what they saw out of people their first time or the result that people got their first time. And so I I think it is only natural that that is uh, the case here and with the the balloting uh, and candidate selection as well. Uh, Okay. So I, I will touch on one thing that was implicit in that, which was Max has already heard about the, uh, the health uh, disasters in Korong. It's easy to forget that Korong was actually filmed before this uh, season began filming, before this whole uh, theatrics at the World's Apart finale. 
uh, Michelle had already uh, logged in her win over Aubrey at that point, and so that kind of thermonuclear bomb that was going to hit the fan base, uh, you know, over a year after that point, that was primed and ready to go, but was lying dormant for the time being. And there's this really fun Easter egg in this vote reveal that I don't think I've seen anyone mention before, and which I only uh, realized as I was rewatching this to prepare for this. Uh, so when Jeff is talking about, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Varner set down for peanut butter. Kimmy, our, our first vegetarian, uh, she, he asked her, is she still a vegetarian? Yes, I am. And I've got two little vegetarians now as well. And Jeff says something to the effect of, well, there's been a lot of talk around chickens recently, <laughs> which makes no sense at the time. But when you realize he has just had to sit through an entire season of Ty's Mark the Chicken uh, routine, actually makes a lot more sense now. That's very funny. And yeah, it is uh, a fun bit of Survivor trivia that Michelle knew she won season 32 before she knew that Mike won season 30. That's very difficult yes. to, to <laughs> outdo there. Uh, final note, just sorry, on the kind of fringes of the ballot here. I was not aware that Max had been told by some CBS employee that he was like a lock to make the season. And I think even after being told that he was probably still pretty skeptical uh, of the idea that he was going to be on there. Like, I think or at least the vibe I always got from Max at that time was debatably happy to even be included on the ballot. But I always thought he more or less knew that he was not going to make it on the show. And likewise, I think Jim Rice was would have been very happy, of course, to go out there and play again. But I think he and, and probably many others uh, in just kind of my memory of the senses I got from hearing them on like RHAP uh, doing their campaigning or whatever was they knew this was going to be a tremendously uphill battle. And I don't think it was particularly devastating for virtually any of them to, to end up missing the cut the same way it potentially at least was for people like Shane or T-Bird who probably had their hopes up. Uh, in yeah. any event, I, Dom, a couple I, of... I do... I, I, okay, sorry. Uh, no, 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 go ahead. I, I'm, I'm going on to completely different things, so by all means. Oh, okay, so yeah, I, I was going to say, we've been talking about just the pregame in general. Should we talk about some of the actual pre-gaming uh, that was going on here? Because there is a sense in which the, the rich get richer when it comes to this process, because... If you are someone who is in the mix to maybe make it on the show and you're you're lining up your ducks in a row pregame in that uh, eventuality, then ideally you want your pregamers in that alliance to be people who you think are going to make it on the show as well. Um, and so maybe you're going to reach out to uh, the Spencers over here and the Shireens over there and the people who you think, yeah, they're, they're definitely going to be there. And if you are a, a Jim Rice uh, in, in the thick of it, then it's like, well, are people even going to talk to you because you making it on would be a surprise. And so once you get there, like you being there is unlikely. And as a result, you surviving for very long is that much more unlikely because you don't have those relationships coming in to work with. I think that is an excellent point. And my main memory of hearing about the pre-gaming that it was going on. And I think it's the case that either Dalton or Josh or maybe it was Mike. Bl I don't know if Mike was even writing official press for Survivor at this point. Some Gordon Holmes, maybe someone. I th I want to say it was before the season even began airing had interviews about who people had like been pregaming with. And I think that is, frankly, a very healthy dynamic for the show. Pregaming is going to happen on any returnee season you ever do. Uh, and I my 
foremost memory of all of that was Jeff Varner just being like a transcendent kind of pre-gamer in terms of having deals with everyone he could get his hands on. And I remember when we found out what the starting tribes were going to be, it very much seemed to me like that Takeo tribe was almost like they had reverse engineered who was going to be on what team based on like maximizing the number of people that Jeff Varner had like promised the world to, and just put them all on the same team with him and watch what happens. I, my, what else am I forgetting about the like ins and outs and like the big alliances forming pregame? You are forgetting uh, the, the exclusive interview that we had with, Spencer pre-game, uh, our first uh, pre-perspective, if you like, with anyone. Um, you know, the the night before, uh, actually, and I think it's safe to reveal this at this point. Uh, re- recorded while he was staying with Shireen, just kind of undercover. Um, you know, uh, she wasn't there. The- to, just to clarify, he was in a, a no, hotel uh, room by himself. But oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, the the like he and Shireen had spent a lot of time together leading up to that point. Yeah, and he said that uh, like he was taking some time. He I think he said to call his family, and instead he was calling us to, to give <laughs> yeah. us the gas on what was uh, going on and his expectations, which was, you know, for as much as he has changed a lot since then, and we've uh, he hasn't you know been back on here in a while. Like getting that inside scoop was just an amazing moment for us in terms of just fans of the show and getting to uh, get that real front row seat to what was going on there. Um, and so yeah, that that was one of the more unique just pieces of content as redundant as that phrase is to come out of that whole experience for anyone, I I would say. Yeah. And for anyone uh, who doesn't remember it, it, we did not have an interview with Spencer the night before he left to go play this season that we then posted uh, immediately. What we wanted to do was get all of his like true thoughts about what was about to go down and who he was feeling good about, who he was nervous about. And then, would not release that until after the season actually finished airing, which is what we ended up doing. And by, I feel safe uh, saying this at this point, that the way that process actually worked is after the season ended, I sent Spencer the actual full interview that we did with him to make sure that he was still cool with, all of what he said and if he wanted anything taken and i i believe we agreed on this like ahead of time that it wouldn't be released until he got to hear it first and could take out uh whatever he wanted and i will say uh that there were only a couple things he wanted taken out and none of it was remotely a big deal it was entirely things that were yeah, this was 100% true, and I would still stand by it, but I'm nervous that Shireen might take it the wrong way, so let's just scrap that. <laughs> and that story checks out massively on that front, based <laughs> on uh, all of those people involved as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Dom, a couple other things that I have certainly mentioned many, many times over the years, but this is, I think, a, a prime opportunity to do so and can't help myself whenever the opportunity arises, so here we go. Uh, first of all, and again, just looking at the Wikipedia for this season, a thing that j- jumps off the page to me every time, uh, love it, wish we had done more of it historically, and love that they are doing a lot more of things of this nature in modern times. 
scrolling through this cast. We have Spencer at age 23. Joe and Sierra are both 26. Kelly Wentworth is 29. Everyone else, the 16 out of the 20 people on this cast are 30 or over, and 13 of the 20 are 35 or over, uh, a drastically older cast than anything we had seen to that point, and most of the cast that we will ever see in the history of Survivor, as far as I can tell at this hour. Uh, and then on top of that, with age, of course, it's going to be a much more parent-heavy cast uh, than we had ever really seen to that point and continue to see to this day, and probably only really rivaled by Winners at War along those lines. And I will spare you the lecture for the time being. Uh, maybe this will come up once we get closer to like the end game of our coverage, but uh, that, I think, is going to play a pretty significant role along the way here as well. Uh, so, Dom... I haven't actually rewatched this season, maybe even like since it was airing. My, my general routine is, of course, watch the episode for the first time and just soak in as much as I can. Rewatch the episode to do prep for like whatever podcast we're recording that week. And then I don't think I've really rewatched virtually any of the seasons that we've covered in real time other than Kageyan. Uh, over the years. So this is going to be my first time rewatching this essentially since it initially aired. I'm sure there's going to be a ton that I have completely forgotten about. I am really, really excited to dive back into it. You know, we just wrapped up Micronesia. That was maybe my favorite season that we have ever rewatched and covered again for the patron feed. I am optimistic that this one uh, I it, it, it's probably not just to be blunt about it going to be quite on that same level but I do think it's going to offer a very compelling and fun season of actual survivor stuff to cover and then as we've already been talking about for basically the entirety of this podcast there is so much kind of meta game stuff social media stuff just kind of external factors in play here that are going to be very fun uh, to go back through and relive. And Dom, uh, I am very excited uh, to, to dive back into Cambodia for the first time in far too long. Yeah. I'm hopeful that the season itself is going to be fun. Although I, as like you, I haven't revisited this in, what is it close to eight years now, but I, I'm sure that talking about it is going to be fun for sure. I, I mean, Cambodia came at a point where one of my main memories of like the early days of Cambodia, I have forgotten like the vast majority of specifics of how like PG got voted. Someone stole a bracelet. She stole Abby's brace. I don't know. I, I, I know that Monica Padilla like got voted out on a three, two, one split. No idea what the actual process was for how we arrive at that conclusion. Excited to find out all over again. I, uh, but I think that this is a season that very much is going to impact just kind of the trajectory of Survivor going forward. And like, oh, to return to what the thought I was trying to set up there, the, my main memory of like the early days of this is being like over the moon that we had three or four realistic winner candidates after the first three episodes that to me was like such a step in the right direction and now of course we're in the era dom we're like all we know is that we know nothing the dun chain has been dun chained and like the floodgates are just wide open along those lines so i uh, gonna be 
a real blast from the past in a number of different respects here in going back and rewatching how a season from eight years ago ends up looking through a modern lens. Dom, uh, anything else that you wanted to get to before we dive into the premiere? No, even just talking about all of this pregame stuff was a lot of fun in its own right, bringing some of those memories back, uh, going back and rewatching that vote reveal for the first time for who was going to be on the cast was a, a really interesting experience. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And Hey, we're getting uh, a new non Fiji location. I, you know, we've been in Micronesia and plenty of other non Fiji locations on the patron feed, but uh, it'll be cool. I'm just thinking about like what's to come in the premiere and them going through the temple and there being, uh, at least some degree of like cultural relevance to what's going on in this season. I now uh, am very excited about what I know. It's going to be a while before we get there, but a nighttime challenge on this season uh, has oh, yeah. me very amped up. So uh, again, super pumped to, to dive into all of this. And the way that this is going to go is I'm going to post this as well as our premiere episode rewatch coverage on the main feed Uh, and so if you're hearing us there the remainder of this season is going to be over on the patron feed at patreon.com slash dom and colin and over there we have many 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 other uh seasons at this point that we've gone back and rewatched episode by episode much like we're going to be doing with cambodia here uh as mentioned several times to this point just wrapped up micronesia ton of fun uh heroes versus villains over there china Fiji, Guatemala, I'm sure I'm forgetting many others, uh, some Big Brother seasons, some The Mole seasons, a lot of a lot of random bonus episodes if anyone would be interested in, at this point, what is probably like hundreds of hours of additional content, patreon.com slash Dom and Colin, and that is where you're going to be able to hear uh, episodes two and beyond of our Cambodia coverage, but for the people, again, all hearing us on the main feed now, I'm just going to put a kind of seamless transition into the premiere episode for the people hearing us ahead of time uh, on Patreon. That is going to be, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future. I, I think we should be able to get uh, into this pretty quickly. So everyone who made it to this point, I guess... <laughs> To once again split it between main feed people. Main feed people, don't go anywhere. The premiere is coming right up. Patron people, thank you, of course, as always, for supporting the show. And the premiere will be right around the corner. In either case, we will talk to you soon. Take care, everybody. Right. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are again, Dominic, to at last dive into the premiere itself after uh, some extensive kind of pregame coverage. How are you doing? I'm doing good, uh, and I'm looking forward to diving back in here. It struck me that this was, so th- this era of Survivor was back when I was still out, out of a professional obligation, I suppose, but also just interest in the show. I was almost re-watching these seasons as they aired, and so going up to the merge or going up to the finale, in order to have that complete perspective coming into the end of the season and then to be able to analyze it afterwards, I wanted to see how, you know, the early episodes in real time compared to the early episodes with all of the other knowledge that I'd accumulated up until that point uh, in the season. And so I'm pretty sure that I would have rewatched most, if not all, of Cambodia in, like, uh, I guess this was this the the summer or the winter season. This would have been it. Uh, so I used to have I had a fantastic formula that worked forever <laughs> until COVID 
got in the way of like the Survivor season airing. So the formula was take whatever calendar year it. Oh God, I'm gonna mess it up. All right, <laughs> it's the calendar year divided by two. Uh, no, okay, okay. already okay, messing no, it I, up. It's the season I, I number divided I, I by two. We'll give you the calendar year, and you either round up or round down, and unfortunately, even though I used this successfully for the better part of a couple decades, I've already forgotten which direction it goes, but I think it is the case that 31... Being an odd number. To, all right, I give up. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm failing everyone in real time. This, is, this podcast is off to a terrible start. You are correct that rounding up or rounding down are the two options if there <laughs> is some kind of a re uh, remainder there. So uh, not much help. But I'm pretty sure uh, after having run through the numbers in my head quickly, this would have been the uh, the winter or fall 2015 uh, season. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I would have watched this episode in, like, September 2015 and then again in December 2015 or thereabouts, and this is the first time I'm watching it in the seven-plus years since then. So it is fun to go back and actually kind of relive the experience that I already relived, but so long ago that I've forgotten what I relived, and now I'm just living it again, I suppose. I, I, I can now, formula aside, confirm for you that this was a fall season, because I do know that uh, the Big Brother season that always airs over the course of a summer was finishing as this uh, premiere was taking place. So, yes, uh, this was indeed um, a fall-slash-winter season. I probably was in a similar camp to you. I don't know that I necessarily rewatched the whole thing leading up to the finale, but that would be something I might have done, and this would have probably been a high likelihood uh, season for that to be the case not necessarily like the entire thing but at least bits and pieces but one way or another that was probably the last time that i rewatched uh cambodia in anything close to its entirety and excited obviously as we talked through in great detail in our kind of pre-game episode to get the opportunity to come back in here and relive this entire experience all over again although i will say as far as premieres go and certainly premieres for seasons that i generally regard as really good not to kind of put an immediate damper on this podcast itself but i would say game wise at the very least this is actually a surprisingly low-key premiere for me yeah i would say from the moment they hit the beach the season is off to a fine start, but not one that blows you away. However, the preamble to that, where we have those clips from the uh, the, the second chance uh, cast announcement from the Worlds Apart reunion, uh, and then we have the uh, we have the opening credits, which feels like a real blast from the past at this point. We have that walk through the the amazing Angle Wat temples. Uh, just the the entire setup for that opening marooning is phenomenal, and the marooning itself is a lot of fun. Uh, just the, the absolute chaos as they try to get stuff off the boat and then into their own boats, and it's just a whole a whole uh, clusterfuck of chickens and God knows what else. Uh, and Jeff is loving it uh, and really relishing that experience. Uh, and yeah, after that, it's it's good. It's like a solid premiere, sets you up for what's to come. And I think episode two is where I remember the season really taking off in terms of this is where we kind of see some of it here, like Jeff Varner just playing both sides and uh, catching up for lost time in terms of overplaying uh, 15 years worth of Survivor in, in one moment. Um, but episode two is where that really starts to kind of catch up with him and to make yourself felt. Um, 
And this is just the, the first act in that story, if you like. So given that that's what it is, I think it's uh, yeah, hard to have too many complaints. Oh, absolutely. And I would further say that I think it was a good decision on the part of like the editors or story designers or whatever to spend the bulk of what is a 90 minute episode, by the way, which is a lot of fun and it flies by. It's still a very I don't want to discourage anyone from rewatching it because it is still very good to spend the bulk of that reintroducing us to the characters and the, you know, the people that we at least theoretically have selected to be back on this show. I uh, get to know what kind of like baggage they have hanging over their heads coming into this season. And I think it's a very strong decision to spend most of the time on that sort of thing. When the vote itself, I don't, at all mean to diminish what was going on on the beaches by calling it straightforward, but it's not, it's certainly not like an all time kind of epic premiere blindside. And it is very clearly a story that can be told pretty succinctly. Uh, so I, I'm in favor of, I'm a fan of the decision to make this an episode that doesn't have like this crazy, hectic live tribal or i guess you can't really force or fake a live tribal but you, you understand what i'm saying i think uh in this case it was a very smart call to have the vote be almost like an afterthought of everything else going on in this premiere because there is a, a great deal indeed going on in this premiere and it may be, I, I might be wrong in saying that this is the last time, uh, at least at the time of this recording, that a season premiere has begun with kind of like a stroll through the local setting. Uh, in this case, we're going to be taking a bus through whatever city they're nearby in Cambodia. And then, of course, we have the stunning uh, kind of walk through the Angkor Wat temples and getting to see the cast really like soak all of that in is really good stuff. Uh, does anything come to mind for you of a season that aired after this, where we've had this sort of thing? Cause there was a stretch in certainly the middle kind of early days where this was fairly commonplace. Uh, but to, for me, even knowing that this was coming, it did jump off the page to me as like, wow, it feels like forever since we've done this kind of thing. Yeah, no more recent examples than that spring to mind. And it would almost be impossible to do that now where you understand you are in the same location the entire time, but the specifics of that location are never really acknowledged. It feels like we we get to see the, the, the beaches as background or as setting, but nothing outside of that like immediate production zone is even on our radar at all, despite it being like the go-to location for the show now. So to see both the location as such a central part of this introduction and then that, that intro sequence uh, with the credits, it, it gives a very old school feeling to a season where, for a lot of people, this is the bridge between uh, new school and new new school, like truly postmodern survivor, and where that contrast between the the old school players and the new school players is an explicit one that uh, draws these battle lines on Takeo uh, here in the early days. But it's also just an implied theme of the season, right? Like, can these people who played back in the early 2000s in the the golden era of survivor can they still hack it and what the game has become now and yet you compare certainly the the first minutes of this first episode uh here to anything from from nowadays it really is like night and day yet again well i'm realizing because uh co-wrong was actually filmed before this and actually just aired 
out of uh, order. This is literally the most recent season that was not filmed in Fiji. Oh, wow. Yeah, the exact uh, matter hadn't really occurred to me, but wow, that, that's uh, something to consider. Yeah, sure. I, 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 I'm sure I knew that on some kind of like subconscious level, but I think that's the first time that idea has ever actively like registered in my brain. Uh, but regardless, a lot of fun getting that sort of uh, intro and kind of background to reintroducing us to all of these very fun players. And I think there are a couple things from those kind of like intro packages that jumped out enough to me that I feel uh, like they're worth bringing up on air. And maybe a lot of it has to do with me just kind of having a bad memory for particular kind of facets of survivor. Uh, but the first was this, and I'm still unclear on how much to really even be expecting in terms of, becoming able to resolve more of this in my own mind, but for whatever reason, and I didn't think this is the place that I was going to start with this episode either. Seeing Sierra Easton in particular during this kind of intro package didn't tell I knew she was on the season. I know she's going to go on to be on the season for quite some time. It didn't really take me by surprise, but it, the thought crossed my mind and I'm curious where you're at along these lines. Sierra is one of, very, very few people for whom we covered three or more uh, of their seasons like in real time as this podcast has been unfolding over the last 11-ish years. And I, I have always like abstractly enjoyed Sierra as a player, enjoyed Sierra as a character. Seeing her here this time, though, really uh, kind of sent the message home for me that apart from voting out her own mom and, of course, the big rock draw vote in Blood versus Water, as much as I have always thought of Sierra as someone I was really happy that they ended up casting on Survivor, I have very few, like, concrete memories of Sierra over the three three seasons she's been on that we've covered, and obviously that is uh, impacted by how early she ends up going out in Game Changers. But are you on, where are you on, like, firm memories of Sierra? I don't need, like, detailed well, well, uh, list and takes or whatever, but am I am I on, like, a totally different place than you uh, as far as that is concerned? I don't know if I could give you a detailed list or even a list at all outside of those exact moments that you set up there from uh, Blood vs. Water, because... And those were moments which were very unique to their season and to their context. Like, she can't come back on Game Changers and vote her mom again. Her mom is not there to be voting out. I guess you could anoint some contestant as mother and then try and vote them out, but that's that's really not the same. Um, I don't even yeah, know world... who... For, Game Changers might be one of the only, like, mother... Pro oh, see, Cerise there, Aubrey's there. I think we could find mother. Andrea Belke, of course. Of course, Lots yeah. of uh, mother candidates uh, waiting in the wings. But, um, yeah, it, it's... And for as much as the rock draw was this shocking moment in its time, since then, you know, we we get to millennials versus Gen X, and oh, here's just a rock draw. We don't really think too much of it. And that almost became part of the fabric of the show past a certain point. So, yeah, back in 2013, I remember Sierra making this really strong impression uh, on viewers at the time, and it was a lot that she would be brought back at the first opportunity. And if they had to do some, like, weird half and half thing where it's three returnees or whatever sierra probably is a good bet to be uh one of those and yet 
once she comes back for uh for Cambodia and then again for for Game Changers she almost has less of an impact in each successive season. So you, you fix in your memory, this is Sierra and Blood versus Water. And then Cambodia, even though she lasts like a decent length into the season, it's really hard to pinpoint any one specific thing about Sierra's time on the season that really stands out at all. And then, of course, we get to Game Changers. She's the first boot. But it, it, in a way, it almost feels... Her, her absence in this season feels stronger because, yeah, if they're the first boot, of course, you don't expect anything more from them and it's tragic and there's almost some unrealized potential that you could point to instead. Whereas here is, yeah, she was there for over half the season and I, so what? Who cares? Yeah. Uh, and then the other person that stood out to me, not because I had forgotten uh, that much about her, I, you know, we just rewatched Kageyan not too long ago. Uh, and I feel like I have a much better kind of working memory of this person on Survivor. But Tasha was someone that when I saw her for the first time on this season, and I loved, incidentally, our reintroduction to her, uh, where she has the confessional about how the people at her church t- were telling her she should have been more cutthroat. And if the saints say it's OK, then it's OK. So I'm going to win a million dollars and then I'll pray for forgiveness. I really liked seeing that again and seeing just Tasha again in general uh and not so much in the context like sierra of oh i'm going to keep a closer eye on tasha because i'm trying to formulate some sort of memory of her i'm all i'm 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 very confident uh in my memory of tasha fox it is though i think kind of uh and this is my own fault a, a blind spot for me in terms of tasha's trajectory on this season in particular, and that is something uh, that I'm going to be hopefully able to keep a closer eye on this time around, because she is going to go the distance. And I remember a few things along the way, but my gut is telling me uh, that there is going to be plenty of Tasha stuff that surprises me uh, during this rewatch, and I am excited for that. Yeah, Tasha is someone who I'm almost surprised has not come back for a third season in her own right, because uh, she goes deep in Kagayan, uh, has this kind of hero arc there, comes back here, is that, uh, that I would say, very compelling losing finalist, has some big moments along the way. And she seems like someone who even uh, in an era before, like, we're trying to make the show more diverse and where we're trying to... Uh, trying to we're trying to focus the show around these certain uh priorities like she's someone who i would just happily watch play a season of survivor or we saw her on the challenge but sadly for not too long i think she would be great on the traitors as would many other people on this cast i think and like yeah i i almost think that that is one of the missed opportunities just not having tasha back but past a certain point where do you do that like do you do it in in, in game changers do you just have a bunch of three piece there and understand that like sierra some of them are just going to fall off and fall flat um and even you know a temporary friend of the show aubrey bracco had a kind of similar arc to sierra right whereas uh you start high you come back and again go very deep but then without much to really hang your hat on and then come back for this kind of fizzle out in the third season a lot of people following that same trajectory and so um we, we touched on this uh with like some of the the micronesia cast too where for a lot of people that was a springboard to a, a kind of totemic third appearance for them and for others it was the thing that stopped what could have been an even longer survivor career right like if we said if yaman goes further in that season it turns out he gets the call maybe for heroes versus villains anyway but yeah you, you have to think if he goes deep here they're looking for any excuse to make him the new face of the franchise too mm-hmm. uh so i wonder how many people in and 
yeah, I will return from this tangent in a second, but I wonder how many people out there saw this as a second chance, but with the understanding that this is a second chance that could lead to more. Like, this is the second chance that becomes a kind of a, a third chance as well in its own right. I would guess a decent number of them were very aware of the possibility that granting that they had already to be back on this season in the first place for the most part made a big enough kind of impression their original time around. I don't think necessarily that like Keith or like Kelly Wigglesworth was hoping that this would be able to be like parlayed into a third, fourth, maybe even fifth shot on survivor down the line. But I think there, you know, if we give all of these players truth serum at the beginning of the game, I, I would imagine many would come up with the answer with an answer that is something along the lines of this could quite conceivably because my first time was so memorable if this one is also memorable i could easily find myself out here a third fourth time for sure yeah so i i am on tasha watch for the season not just because she's going to play a big part in how the season plays out and also be one of the these pivotal end gamers but also because i think she's just a a fascinating character to watch play survivor and that religious element to her game is a fascinating one because we have definitely seen people like coach like dawn me and like so many others across the years you know that their co-star brad and hans if you want to call them that who have really just been kind of torn apart from within by that tension between what they think of their religious obligations and how they want to play the game of survivor and it sounds like tasha had some of that same ambivalence, although she you know, seemed willing to be covered when she needed to be and put her foot down in Kagayan. And so the fact that she is like casting off those shackles now explicitly um, is kind of putting the rest of the cast on notice. Having said that, one of the reasons that she ends up getting zero votes and why she got such a strong backlash from the rest of her cast is that apparently she was uh, bringing religion into her decisions and framing it in those terms quite openly and quite publicly. And so uh, I guess it's tougher to escape that than anyone wants to give it credit for. And then within this episode too, uh, she, she will uh, be displaying very uh, unchurch-like behavior and just openly lusting over Job, who, whose <laughs> body is phenomenal, apparently. He is Joey Amazing for a reason. Uh, and maybe maybe that's what the elders of her church told her, to just be more horny and see where that gets you. I mean, maybe it's the case uh, that Tasha wanting to make an effort to set that sort of thing aside, uh, the religious element is not entirely, and get, you know, getting to voice that in this opening confessional is not entirely unlike the Spencer opening confessional about how excited he is to be a much more emotionally aware Spencer this time around and how people can't be treated like chess pieces, uh, et cetera. I do wonder if even though it may not uh come through on like the actual tv episodes it's almost like an ironic kind of int reintroduction to them given how things are going to play out like if you know that kind of mentality is going to go too hard the opposite direction for spencer uh and cost him the game if maybe tasha's opening confessional at least conceivably could be along similar lines there although i did again i think this confessional about i'll get the million dollars and then pray for forgiveness is so good that it would make the cut uh either way and i'm probably just reaching uh as far as all of that is concerned but it would be fun uh to live in a world like that uh the other people dom from this big intro package 
that really jumped off the page to me because I think it has been so many years since the last time that I have I been regularly uh, exposed to this sort of character, I would say, is all three of Abby Maria, Cass, and Keith Nail. The first time I saw them on this season uh, during this rewatch and heard them speak and give what I would consider in all three cases kind of classic confessionals for whichever person was in question there, I non-ironically missed the hell out of all three of these people. <laughs> I didn't, I am not at the point where I'm willing to say that some of my criticisms of criticisms of them over the years were necessarily bad calls in the moment, although perhaps they were. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've certainly been willing to give all three of these people a hard time for a number of different reasons, both as uh, char- characters and, and players over the years. Uh, seeing them again this time, however, was truly just like a letter from home, and I'm very excited to get more. Just open your heart to Keith Nail, Connor. I, it's been, what, what, almost a decade at this point? You can do it. I believe in you. I, that's the thing. is, I think this time around, he he might have a, fight, a, a puncher's chance in there uh, in the heart of Colin Stone. To, because, Dom, I feel like, you know, we, we certainly get plenty of big personalities on Modern Survivor in, like, this new era, but such an overwhelming supermajority of them are like diehard fans of the game who above all, it seems like really want to do well uh, in the battle of being a big character versus being good at survivor. And well, I am not at all trying to say that Abby Keith and Cass were out there on any of their seasons, actively prioritizing like a big TV presence over success in the game by any stretch. I do feel like that was basically the end result for all of them. And I don't feel like that is often the case these days, although there probably are some counterpoint counter examples uh, that one could cite, but like, I feel like, and forgive my like very bad short term memory, memory along these lines. I feel like the closest we've come is like a, a Gabler type who is just uh, a naturally kind of, goofy fit within any season of survivor that you're going to be putting together. And it actually went his way uh, on the season that he actually was playing. And please feel free, Dom, uh, if, if any other similar kind of character types come to mind for you. But I feel like when we do get that in the new era, it's generally from the perspective of like this person's an early boot and that's how we're going to explain why they get voted out right away. And it does feel pretty few and far between that someone who is primarily there to be a character has been like a a big presence on any of these most recent seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, So we are going to get through all of these intro packages. I would guess it is the case, although I'm not sure that maybe not literally everyone got a confessional in the first 20-ish minutes. Like, I don't know that Monica Padilla, for instance, uh, really got to introduce herself to the viewing audience again. And I'm, I, I would imagine there are a couple other uh, relatively purple people over the beginning half of this episode. But one way or another, I did think that this 
uh, intro sequence was very, very fun and well done. And now we are going to wind up on a big ship, uh, which not the first time, not the last time. And I think this was like a very deliberate homage to the Survivor Borneo introduction, uh, much like the immunity challenge that we will be getting into uh, a little later here where they're going to do roughly the exact same thing. And I think it is this season that kind of reignites their passion for leading the season off with everyone on a big boat. They scramble for supplies. There's probably an advantage uh, somewhere around there. And this uh, in particular, I think is a really good execution of that where not only are we going to be scrambling for supplies on the boats, but about a hundred yards, I think, away from the boat in question, there's a second boat, Dom. Uh, the, we we have a second location to get to, which is yet another boat. And on that second boat is a big supply of rice for whichever team is able to get there first. So there is kind of this. I don't think it's like explicitly a race against the clock. I think the dynamic is take as much as you want, but if the other team ends up getting there before you do, they're going to be playing at a big-time upper hand as far as the rice situation is going to be concerned, and that is, I think, a, a pretty significant deal. But it did cross my mind. Unless I missed something, I don't think there was like an explicit time limit, and I further don't think that you, you meaning whoever you are out there playing survivor want to be the person to suggest this, because I think it would kind of, I uh, give off the impression that you're thinking about ways to break the game, like a minute into things starting. But if there wasn't like an explicit time limit, I feel like someone conceivably could have just shouted to the entire boat. Hey, Let's not kill each other and ourselves out here. Let's take our time in gathering up as many supplies as we can get to. And then we'll have like a we can all agree when it's time to, to leave for boat number two. I feel like there was at least potentially, Dom, a missed opportunity here for the teams to kind of collude and make sure that none of them were going to be starving. And incur the wrath of some very uh, annoyed producers in the yeah. process, I imagine, who, uh, if you are returning to Survivor after a, a dozen years away, you want to be on their good side. You want to make sure that they, you know, your reintroduction to them is not a, a negative one. So not sure how well that would have gone down, but I, I like where your head is coming from. Uh, but that's the thing is both as far as the other contestants and the producers are concerned, I don't think you in particular should be the person who is one minute into the game blatantly trying to... Uh, structure some multi-tribal agreement that grossly violates the spirit of what is going on here. Uh, I, I think that is a, a fair reason to not do it. But I, I would say if I was on this season and someone else put out that uh, kind of suggestion, I think I would be pretty eager to embrace it. Uh, so we get, Dom, the classic Jeff Probst 39 days, 20 people, one survivor. And I will say... Hearing him say 39 days, I'm already at the point where that does feel like a lot to me, even though it was the complete standard unquestioned for 20 years. I will continue with my take for now that were it not for that being announced ahead of time, no one would actually be able to tell the difference. But uh, I guess we can continue to relitigate that once a season over here on the uh, the main feed. And to be clear, 
I do not mean that even I would be able to tell the difference between a season that had 26 days versus a season that had 39 days were the day counts not constantly being popped up for me at the bottom. But I think I am already at the point, even after less than two uh, years in this new era, where hearing just the number 39 feels like a high number to me. Uh, so well I, there's there's basically nothing that we actually have to track along these lines you're totally right that it's not going to feel any different in terms of how the season itself is structured i would imagine but again to return to my gut which is the ultimate uh arbiter of significance when it comes to watching a survivor season it does feel like uh, a thing of the ancient past as far as that is concerned even though it is it has not been that long and 39 should for sure still be like feeling like roughly the default to me. Uh, but I found it at least interesting that for whatever reason uh, that, that really stood out as like odd, uh, it, which it's not in any case. Uh, the one other thing that I have down here uh, from this whole like intro sequence, and it's actually kind of a, a flashback to the very beginning of the intro sequence is there is uh, a Jeff voiceover kind of setting up the theme and what's going on and how all these people are getting a second chance. And I thought it was very funny uh, that they're cutting to clips of all of these people losing. And in the case of Wu, they play him losing in Kageyan over uh, the vote reveal from that uh, finale. And Jeff gives the narration for those who win, and it cuts to Tony, a million dollars and a high that may never be repeated, end quote. And, of course, uh, it's the one person who, they don't know this at the time, uh, this guy is going to not only go on to repeat this victory of a lifetime that they're setting up as once in a lifetime, he may indeed exceed uh, the high of that victory in Kageyan that we're seeing footage of as his second time around, or I guess it's third, but his second victory is going to be against a cast of all winners, and it's going to be for twice as much money. So I thought it was quite funny uh, that Tony is the example they pull to illustrate this once-in-a-lifetime miraculous moment. A, a real uh, flashback to you can't win again in the same way, which it turns <laughs> out you very much can win again in the same way, uh, e even if in Tony's case there's a little bit of a dip in between. Uh, that is exactly, that is the perfect parallel there. Uh, okay, so the only other thought I had, Dom, before we dive into the actual like camp life specifics here, and it's probable, if not likely, that something along these lines has come up in some other coverage that we've done somewhere over the years, but for whatever reason, watching this premiere in particular reignited in my mind, the concept of just day one on survivor versus like any other day on survivor. I thought would honestly like kind of suck given how all the chores you have to do, all these relationships you, relationships you generally have to build like out of scratch, although probably less so the case on this season than on most others. Uh, the just kind of natural jitters of being out there on day one, particularly like as a new player, uh, which again is unlike this season. But speaking in generally, I the, the thought crossed my mind that like day one, I would have thought would be like a resoundingly different and almost exclusively in a worse way 
day of survivor than pretty much any of the others you know you have no real food to speak of there are idols and advantages that could be anywhere every conversation that you're not a part of is potentially a reason to be nervous and i actually dom reached out to great friend of the podcast and actually a contestant on this very season of cambodia i asked steven uh to either confirm or deny that things along those lines are roughly the case and he did say there are definitely elements of all of those ideas in play and that there are significant downsides to the first day versus the other. However, and this is something I had completely forgotten to factor in, and I do see how it makes up for all of that. Day one of Survivor is happening after like a week plus of just being completely confined to your own personal space. You can't talk to anyone. You have very little to do. And just the mere fact that now you're finally out there playing Survivor is so fun and refreshing compared to what you've spent the last week doing that it more than makes up for a number of the like day one downsides that would otherwise be in play. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that... I wonder how that changes now in the COVID era too, where, so one reason that was mooted for moving to 26 days in the first place is when that change was made and you needed to have, uh, I think that the standard was a 14 day uh, kind of safety period in place. If you want to keep everyone on, and that includes, you know, cameramen, staff, production assistants, just everyone who is on the, on the payroll, on the docket, for the same amount of time, then, well, okay, we just take the length of the season and we subtract the length of the quarantine period on it, and now we have the same production schedule, but with this uh, added wrinkle uh, accounted for, then I I wonder if in the current era, it might be even more conducive to people just going out there and playing so hard so fast that they play their way out there on play their way out of the game on day one because they've been like caged animals for the past 14 days and that that pent-up energy just needs to get directed at something or someone i I think there is a major element of that and on top of all of the like game oriented decisions that producers have made to really incentivize people playing super hard on day one between even more advantages than we're used to a bunch of challenge twists uh on like within minutes of hitting like the introduce yourself beach i feel like has been kind of a staple in the new era the shot in the dark gets people's minds going uh straight away and playing on smaller tribes i'm sure gets people feeling like the heat underneath them a lot faster than it probably would if they showed up and there were nine other people at their camp uh so yeah i think this is probably something that will continue to be uh, a factor uh, in this new era, even if, the, you know, there's some, like, conclusive, like, COVID serum and we don't even have to quarantine for two full weeks. It's just the standard one week before the game starts. I, I think this is here to stay as far as Survivor is concerned. This, like, jump-started first couple of days here. Uh, and it's, I, I, I'm very self-conscious, Dom, that at the beginning of this episode in setting up kind of this being a lower key episode game wise, I did a grave injustice to what was actually going on out there 
in real time because I I think the boot itself, like the conclusion that we're going to arrive at, is one that is pretty easy to tell in like a straightforward way. But if you were to ask me to pick pretty much any of the first 40 seasons, like which one do you think had the most chaotic day one in real time? I don't know that this is necessarily number one on the list, but I would be floored if it was outside the top like three or four or so by all accounts. And we got plenty of accounts uh, from how things were going on this season. As soon as they hit the beach, it was just a mile a minute. And that basically didn't subside at any point along the way, like when they hit the merge beach, there were 10,000 conversations and 20,000 different plans being formulated and counterplanned against and going back on, gone back on. I'm, I'm messing up my tenses here, uh, but I definitely don't mean to suggest that there was less than usual going on on the beaches themselves. I just mean on the TV episodes, there's less than usual going on game wise, but I think it, it does certainly come through at both the Bayon beach and the, the Takeo beach that these people are very ready to dive in. And I was very keen to see what was going to happen on this Bayon beach. Cause one of the recurring complaints that I remembered us making time and time again, over the course of the season, as we got to uh, the merge and the mid game and then the late game. And it seemed like the, the Bion, uh, the Bion boys, and then yeah, with Tasha and some other people in there, they were going to go the distance. One of the recurring complaints was we just never got a clear sense of what those initial dynamics were on the Bion tribe. And speaking to Stephen after the fact was so illuminating in terms of just the entire history there that informed how all of the post-match game played out. And so I was keen to see how much of that actually came through on the episode here. How much of the the day one stuff did we get to see? And so we see, yeah. Stephen is uh, skulking off and looking for idols, but not doing it very successfully and getting his uh, his very tight pants wet in the in the muddy water and then having this truly iconic uh, moment trying trying in vain to chop the uh, uh, chop the, the the logs there. It's I mean it's a phenomenal character study, but it's also not the most uh, indicative of okay these are the alliances that we need to care about. This is why, you know, Savage had such a hold on the group. This is how, I mean, we did see Jeremy, right? That This is actually the one thing which, when you know what to look for, you see it loud and clear, is Jeremy outlines his meat shield strategy and then goes and gathers his meat shields. But um, a, a lot of the more subtle stuff within that, and certainly the role that, you know, most of the women played in that tribe, you just don't really get an early inkling of. So I, I hope we get to see more of that in episode two, episode three, and then we, there's actually... Thinking about it, not much chance to see what goes on on OG Bion because we're swapping in, what is it, uh, two, three episodes? Um, and so, oh, one episode even. And, and so this is kind of what we get. And what we get is not very much. I'm, I'm kind of reliving that frustration now and understanding why, uh, you know, 22, uh, 22-year-old me, God, I was so incensed about uh, all of that in the moment. Yeah, I mean, the the real headlines, I would say, at Bion in this premiere are Jeremy is the man and Steven is kind of a doofus. I where I like in the moment I remember coming away from this premiere and these early episodes in general thrilled that we had still had after like episode 3 three or four like very viable winner candidates because that was very much not the case on the season that preceded this and would 
continue to not really be the case on most of the seasons that came on the heels of this. But uh, in not only, of course, now knowing that Jeremy is going to go on to be our eventual winner, uh, but in coming at this from the perspective of just having watched 41, 42, and 43 play out most recently, where for all intents and purposes, at least by the standards of back in the day when this season was initially airing, the winner edit is just like lost and gone, at least for now, if not forever, in the new era. Uh, it is wild to see what a hardcore winner edit Jeremy is getting straight away in this premiere. Like the literal first thing we get at Bayon is Jeremy first talking about his family uh, and how he wants to do it for them and prove himself the second time around and then straight like smash cut into Jeremy goes around and brings in Dom, the, the meat shields that you mentioned, he brings in Tasha and very clearly has like a sharp mind for the game and is doing a good job. And Oh, on top of that, uh, he's a family man that makes it very easy to root for him. I like coming from the new era into diving back into this sort of era, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's borderline jarring, uh, much like the 39-day thing, where this sort of treatment for the eventual winner was totally standard and should not be taking me by surprise to the extent that it is. But it is, it's been a little while since I've seen anything along these lines, and it definitely is like a, a glaring difference between this point in time in Survivor's run versus modern times. Uh, and incidentally, Dom, Jeremy gets a confessional discussing why the first person he wanted to bring in was Keith, my man, Keith nail. Uh, and I actually thought this was a really sharp idea. Uh, I, you know, I have a ton to say about how sharp I think meat shields are in general. And that's, I think for the most part, what Jeremy's game on Cambodia is remembered for and rightly so. But I think that bringing in Keith, locking him down in the first couple hours that they're at the beach on the grounds that, Keith, not only is he someone that Jeremy has played with before and presumably has some sort of familiarity with uh, and a good dynamic with, but Keith is the kind of guy who, if you do get his loyalty, he'll tell you. Uh, if he hears your name being floated out there, no matter what that means for his game, he's not thinking about, oh, well, if this gets back to Jeremy, they're going to ask where it came from and maybe this will blow up my own spot with other people. I think getting Keith as like a solid inner circle person is perhaps counterintuitively, at least to me, uh, like my former self back in the day, a very, very sharp call. Yeah. You want someone who once all of your supposedly larger targets have been uh, shot out from around you, you want someone who, when you yourself are the biggest target, is still going to be willing to go the distance with you and be your right, right or die. Keith is that guy. And even though, we're going to see Keith for his second season in a row get clipped just at the the last uh, hurdle because people aren't actually convinced that they can beat him in the end. Um, that's also a good person to have there with you. Someone who uh, is seen as a jury threat in their own right and probably is not winning the challenge to take that decision out of your hands. That is, you know, Keith himself almost becomes a meat shield resource for Jeremy by the time we, we get down there. Yeah, uh, and additionally, not only Keith, but uh, I think locking down Tasha straight away was a very good call because I certainly remember 
in the Cambodia exit press. And I think I have hand up kind of unfairly held held this against Tasha is an extreme way of putting it. But I've I've thought less of Tasha as a strategist in a perhaps unfair way because of the Cambodia exit press where she was very clear and almost proud of the fact that after seeing the result where she gets shut out by Jeremy in the finals, maybe she has changed her mind over the years, but I definitely remember her answers to all of the questions about, Oh, do you regret going with Jeremy to the end being absolutely not? I would do it all over the exact same way if I had to. And someone like that who is willing to ride or die with you, no matter what it means for them, even after they've seen that uh, it's going to be very, very bad news being in a jury vote against you is also a tremendously valuable person uh, to have on your side, especially when it's someone like Tasha, sorry, Dom, who can, who can, uh, contribute strategically and challenge wise we can make fun of that and raise an eyebrow at that all we want there are many people like that on any given season of survivor even the more cutthroat ones uh, and th- this includes people who in every other respect are very accomplished survivor players and like good operators in the game uh you know we are both big fans of Denise safely, but even we would have to admit that if Denise had her brothers, she was going to get uh, drubbered in the finals of the Philippines by Malcolm. And it was only uh, him dropping the ball in both a literal and a figurative sense that uh, allowed the outcome that allowed her to win. And so I think that is it seems weird to us just with the way that we're wired, but that is actually a very common just mindset for even some of the better survivor players and knowing that and finding who those people are is what makes you a good survivor player if you're able to harness that totally yeah uh and then the only other story and we've already touched on it a little bit i feel like uh we got out of this early buy-on camp other than the formation of what would go on to be the eventual like buy-on strong majority alliance is jeremy wants to bring steven into that group and savage isn't uh necessarily as into that idea i think uh if memory serves, at least according to Steven, because Savage like saw some post on Survivor Sucks about how Steven was a schemer and that like just set in stone the idea that he didn't want to work with Steven. Uh, but I would say obviously Vetus is going to go on to get buried over the course of the content that he gets in this episode and understandably so for a number of different reasons there. I would say though, the second biggest like burial in this premiere is probably Stephen Fishback. And I definitely remember uh, watching Stephen on this season being not necessarily formative. Like at no point did I ever really want to go on Survivor in any kind of meaningful way. I've never applied for the show. And at this point, certainly have zero interest in being on Survivor. But I certainly remember watching Steven on this season in particular being this, the kind of storyline and uh, presentation that turned me from not really interested, but under certain circumstances, maybe I could see myself going out there someday to absolutely fucking not. If this is how they can make someone as well put together as Steven Fishback look, forget it. There is no way I would ever dream of going on this show. Yeah, Survivor can make a fool out of anybody that they want, and this is why the mode of analysis that used to be very popular, and still is to some extent, and which we ourselves engage in at times, of like the the live-tweeting snarky comments about how stupid people must be to think that 
person X was on their side or um, a, a lot of the just assumptions that, well, clearly this person had never seen an episode before and had no idea what they're doing. Like being aware of just how constructed and, and mediated all of that was, I think like really saps your enthusiasm for that kind of stuff because you know that there but for the grace of God goes not only you if you were on the show, but the people who currently you might have a very high opinion of who maybe are getting a an undeservedly favorable or glowing edit. Like a, a lot of it is so much within their purview that uh, buying into it too much is only playing into their hands. For sure, yeah. Uh, and then the only other thing I feel like I have on the entire Bion team, uh, although, of course, Tom, feel free to bring up whatever you want, is we do get the scene of them all doing yoga. Check that. Joga together or at least mostly together keith is like a conscientious objector to the the joga of it all but tasha makes that very hilarious pun and then we get which genuinely took me by surprise hashtag joga dom i love that we are back in the hashtag era i further love that we are in modern times no longer in the hashtag era uh but it was a a fun little treat to have this pop up was it I think it was like because not fun in its own right, but fun to remember the idea that they tried to make this a thing. That is fun. Maybe sure, funny sure. is the is a better way of putting it. Okay, I will allow that suddenly. Yeah, I, I was certainly not a huge fan of the hashtag era as it was actually going on. But uh, anything else from you on the buy on side of things? Because at least as far as I'm concerned, we over the first couple episodes are getting buy on stuff that is mostly filling us in on which eventual majority group is coming, is in like the process of coming together, but most of the buy on content is going to be a bit down the line. Yeah. So I think we're good to uh, table buy on for now. Let's go over to Takeo, which is where all of the, the fun stuff is kicking off uh, over here. And I think this is part of the thing that, dooms the narrative of the season unless they're willing to put more care into it is that we have this swap so early and because the initial Takeo tribe loses both of those and Bion is immune like there's no chance for Bion to let that blood out and to have to to expose where those initial dynamics are and so it's easy for that to just kind of get lost in the shuffle unless you are consciously dragging it out of the shuffle which they just simply weren't doing at this point in time. Yeah I and so over here now on this Takeo beach, we straight away have a bunch of people, frankly, going like a million miles a minute. And not surprisingly so, considering I don't have a very firm memory of a whole lot of like the pre-gaming dynamics with most of the people on the Bion team. But this Takeo team, as we talked about, I think a little bit in our pre-game episode, seems to be comprised largely of basically a constantly overlapping Venn diagram of people who had a bunch of pregame deals with each other. And I think Spencer and Shireen are kind of in near the middle of that Venn diagram. And Jeff Varner is just like dead center. And we straight away have the old school people slash shelter people kind of doing their thing and not necessarily wanting to go uh, as haywire as some of the other people on this beach, but I would say with the exceptions probably of Terry 
and Kelly uh, Wigglesworth. Uh, excuse me, Terry. Who am I? Who, Terry and someone else that I'm currently spacing on uh, <laughs> from the old the PG, uh, perhaps uh, on the old school side, or one way or another. <laughs> other than a couple of people within the beach group who I have tragically and now exposed myself for not doing writing down ahead of time. Uh, this whole group kind of centered around Jeff Varner seems to be going just frantically from the second they get onto their beach here. Uh, and it really is Varner who finds himself at the center of things right away, which does make sense considering it seems like he has a pregame alliance with pretty much every single person on this tribe. Which is impressive in its own way, because it makes sense if he is buddied up with the old schoolers and whether he was the instigator there or just got passively brought in, whatever, you, you kind of take that for granted. The fact that he was also in cahoots with the new schoolers at the same time, again, don't know who the one was uh, making that uh, initial uh, reach out, but uh, the, the fact that he's able to like juggle all that at the same time, even before he gets to the beach, he's setting himself up a failure, certainly, but it's a entertaining failure, which is uh, what we want from him, and not the tragic failure that he would later become. Okay, and it is Terry and Kelly, Kelly Wigglesworth. I, am, I now have confidence in myself to, to say that. We're the two that were standing out to me as kind of the like, hey, let's just get to work and whatever happens, happens. Uh, kind of the odd ones out along those lines but yeah uh varner is all over the place and not only varner it seems like uh shireen is pretty eager to get things going here as well and understandably so uh where we get straight away this spencer and shireen connection and dom we of course know and probably virtually anyone hearing us knows that those two were very very tight since the pregame and they pull Varner in and right away Shireen is going to work on getting Vetus the hell out of here and I would say that like in an absolute sense the way that Shireen on day one maybe hour like four or five uh, or thereabouts into this season the way she is conducting this kind of like team strategy meeting and rolling through all the options and talking about you know, how much Vetus needs to go, et cetera, I think in virtually any other situation would be like very, very aggressively bad. And I would probably be in here basically killing anyone uh, for, for taking that direct of an approach. However, given the context here where I think I'm willing to at least give Shireen the benefit of the doubt that she obviously felt totally comfortable with Spencer uh, as this conversation is going on. And I am not having a hard time uh, imagining she and Jeff Varner exchanging a lot of messages pregame uh, to such an extent that, like, I totally get it, uh, where I think in her mind, yes, it is the very early goings of the first day on a season of Survivor, but these are two people that I th I would imagine she feels just about as comfortable with as she possibly could, and she is just being out in the open about what she's thinking and is willing to hear, you know, their ideas and sides of things if they disagree along the way. And I think this largely comes down to like the Shireen presentation largely comes down to the editors knowing that this is all going to backfire on her the next round. But I would not be remotely surprised, Dom, if like Takeo won that second challenge and then the swap went her way. If Shireen taking this sort of line early in alternate timelines actually ended up looking and being uh, like a very good thing. Yeah, I mean, 
all of the people who are calling her out for going too fast too soon, like the Jeff Arnes of the world, are also trying to do the same thing. And I think you can forgive Shireen for thinking that she had found these kindred spirits who also wanted to play the game uh, in such as like hyperspeed kind of way. Exactly. I, I guess you know, to, to some extent, like if everyone is doing that, then no one's doing it successfully. And those people will butt heads a little bit. Uh, and you can't have too many Shireens or too many Varnas on a tribe before everything just starts falling apart as many seasons of Australian survivor will <laughs> provide uh, <laughs> evidence for. Um, but it, especially given the context of her own season and how immediate it was and wanting to kind of right those wrongs and also the people she's with and what she thinks the, the starting position is. Like, I, I would not call myself a natural uh, Shireen sympathizer, but I, I think that that side of things is, like, very, very understandable. For sure, yeah. Uh, and Jeff Varner, as all of this is going on, and I think you put it well in saying that, like, he's trying to play 15 years worth of Survivor in the first couple hours here, the first few days at the very least. He has a confessional dom that I am going to say has not aged super well. Uh, in the moment, it actually was like a pretty poignant thought. But of course, you know, folding in the eventual Jeff Varner of it all is strange to say the least, where Varner has a confessional where he says, quote, most men my age go through a midlife crisis. They buy a Corvette. They cheat on their wives. I go on Survivor. It's not a midlife crisis. It's a midlife quest, end quote. And I think in this case... He's not entirely wrong. Like, obviously, he's not going to get the outcome that he wants. He's going to be gone in pretty short order here. But I do understand where he's coming from. And I don't think we thought virtually anything of it in the moment other than, oh, that's a pretty well put together confessional there by Jeff. Uh, knowing what we know now about the actual midlife crisis of Jeff Varner definitely does stand out. Yeah, and it's not unique to him either, right? Like, I, I think that when we spoke about Max Dawson almost being relieved that he did not make it onto the season, you can question how much of that is sincere versus coping with the eventual outcome. But it really did seem like a lot of people, an unusually high number of people on this season, even controlling for the fact that it's returning players, which always leads to kind of higher emotional stakes and so on. A lot of people on the season, uh, certainly now, but even a few years removed uh, from Cambodia at the time, were just wholly disillusioned with the state of Survivor and their experience on it and kind of wanted to move past it and wipe their hands clean of it and want nothing to do with it anymore. Um, and so, you know, it's Vana and it's Spencer and it's Shireen and it's a whole host of other people. And uh, even the people who remained engaged with it, like Stephen, for example, who, you know, one of the highlights of my week is listening to him on no every week. Even he, I think, would say that for as much as he loved and valued that experience, it also kind of closed the book on Survivor as a participant for him. And it was like, okay, I have discovered or rediscovered the reasons why it is not healthy for me to do this again, even if I wanted to. Right, yeah. Uh, and then um, the other big storyline here in the first day or two on Takeo is Abby and her bracelet that has suddenly gone missing. She eventually finds it in PG's bag, uh, where PG apparently found this bag that didn't have a name tag and didn't know anything was in it so she i took it for herself for whatever reason turns out uh abby's bracelet was in that bag all along so abby eventually finds it there and then 
talks to PG, finds out, you know, the scoop there and, oh, you know, of course, PG, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and she says benefit of the doubt, like five or six times over the course of this, like montage piecing together how all of this is played out. And very hilariously, it is coupled almost every time with her very clearly not giving the benefit of the doubt uh, and going and telling someone else uh, over and over that PG can't be trusted because she accidentally took Abby's bracelet. Uh, Very good stuff. And I don't know, frankly, how much of this actually played into the the fate that PG will go on to meet. I'm guessing it's not zero, but I don't know that this is like the backbone of why she is going to be eliminated uh, straight away. And I frankly probably won't have a clear memory of that until I watch episode three uh, again there, but very funny stuff. And this is what I was talking about in terms of missing Abby is just like this hilarious agent of chaos, even when it does, uh, you know, fall on the head of someone that I was very happy to see back out there and liked a lot uh, in the form of PG, like having an Abby type every so often uh, is, is certainly something that I'm on board with. I could never quite get on board with that. I, I, I'm more partial to the, the like self-aware villains or the two self-aware villains and the, the not self-aware enough villains, whereas it kind of verges on outright, just bad communication or even just cruelty at times. Like I, I find Lester enjoying that, which is weird because I will happily watch two of like MTV's finest, like the the real lows of reality TV, just going at it and the the trashiest fights or what have you. Love for that, uh, love that, and live for it. But when it's someone who you know, friend of the show, PG Law, just like running into the the just like hell beast that Abby had decided to be in those initial few days, it's like you you really feel for her and it's just watching her kind of get chewed up and spat out when you know that. She is doing her best to 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 play nice and paper over what must be a very awkward confrontation. I, I don't know. I, I get that same kind of visceral cringe reaction watching that that a lot of people say they get when watching like cringe humor, like The Office or whatever. Like it, for whatever reason, it just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, and I certainly do feel very bad for PG that she wound up in like the line of fire here. But I think like the thing that I really objected to uh, and perhaps voice this frustration in some spots along the way where it was not uh, as much the case is I really cannot stand it when like a whole season essentially hinges on who can get the person who does not care at all about winning on their side in like some crucial spot. Uh, and that's, I think, now- been a... <laughs> A big piece. See, I love that. <laughs> right. And, and that's just fundamentally, I, I think, just a place where we differ. And I'm, we can probably talk more about this uh, with Abby down the line here. Uh, but, like, that is always something that, that bothers me for whatever reason. And I, maybe it's some deep-seated psychological damage. I don't know what happened to me, Dom, that made me not enjoy that. But that always feels like the opposite of what this game is about to me of like, I, what I enjoy is the kind of like human chess element of it where people are making calculated moves a few steps ahead. And it very much rings false to me when everything comes down to just who can get Keith nail on their side. Oh, here, here we go with the Keith battle. I, I thought no, we'd, I, I, we'd I, move listen, past this officially, but... This this is the season of me embracing Keith. I, I'm all about uh, being much, much 
more of a Keith fan this time around uh, than I was during his original run on both of his seasons there. Uh, and you're uh, you're getting that emotional journey, Eddie. You're learning to have feelings. I'm I'm very excited, Dom, for what the prospect of a more emotionally aware Colin might look like here, and hopefully that does not age as ironically terribly as it did for Spencer there. Uh, and then the only other thing, uh, as far as pre-challenge stuff that we get to from this Takeo tribe is Kelly Wentworth, our hero, going idol hunting, uh, and she does eventually come up here with a clue to the hidden immunity idol, although not the idol itself, because I think for the first time ever, we are going to have an idol hidden at the challenge. And this whole thing was a lot of fun as well. Uh, she is going to initially appear to uh, kind of chicken out and not go for it. And then we get her doubling back, uh, as all heroes do, and going for glory and coming up, Dom, with uh, the hidden, the first hidden immunity idol, at least, of this season, and I don't have a firm memory of this, but I would guess and bet a pretty large amount of money on the fact that 2015 Colin Stone was very happy about this development. Oh, I, I plan to listen back to some of our early uh, episode coverage for the season. I am very confident that 2015 Colin Stone was overjoyed about this development, and I was uh, sighing and tutting and, and trying to rein you in. But I, I do love as well that in stark contrast to some both earlier and later seasons where it felt like it was all idols all the time and uh, they were like just landmines waiting to detonate at any moment. In this season, the idols felt like they had a, a lot longer payoff to them where we see we see Kelly find this idol in the first episode and use it in this phenomenal blindside of Savage, what, eight episodes down the line, something like that? Uh, and then when we get the, the final sex confrontation where you have these like idols canceling each other out at either end, um, that also, you know, Jeremy finds his idol and it's not like he immediately turns around and uses it to save himself. And then the next day we, we see him just stick his hand in a tree somewhere and get it back again. You know, he, he finds it, he bites his time. And then when the moment is right, I mean, I guess he does waste one on Stephen along the way, but that, that's a fun development in itself. <laughs> um, you know, it, it feels like even though the raw quantity of idols is as high as it was in this era and too high for many people, understandably, uh, the actual kind of a payoff of those is, is worth the wait in most cases. Oh, a hundred percent. And it does by modern standards feel like a relatively low number of idols. I uh, compared to like new era and not even necessarily just the new era, but like late thirties and season 40 as well. I, uh, th this, this feels tame by comparison. Uh, but yeah, so the Bion team is going to win this first immunity challenge, which was a replay of the very first immunity challenge ever run on Survivor. I think it was called the Quest for Fire, uh, where they carry their torch through various different obstacles, like in the water and so forth, and then end up doing uh, a puzzle and or carnival game near the end there. And 15 years later, after losing it on her very first challenge she ever played in, Kelly Wigglesworth is going to lose this challenge yet again. Uh, the Takeo team is headed back to a, a tribal council, or I guess headed to their first tribal council. And Dom, I had completely forgotten about this part. They were leaving right now. They leave directly from the challenge to go through tribal council, maybe because the producers were like, look, you guys have already done six seasons worth of scheming. We don't have room in the story to let you do anymore. We need to just go make sure no last second changes happen. We're just going to go vote right now. Uh, so, this, I would say, Dom, as we you know touched on a couple of times already in various different capacities, is 
probably the least suspenseful tribal council of the entire season. And I think, again, that's totally fine. I don't think this needed to be some epic blindside or anything even close to it. Uh, I think the the way this Vetus boot story goes is, sure, probably a bit heavy-handed, uh, but I'm not personally going to be like losing any sleep at night over the fact that Vetus may have been done wrong by uh, the edit on Survivor on one of his two appearances there. Uh, is, he, yeah, Especially after just how big of an edit he got the first time around where i i enjoyed that uh that playoff between aris and vetus and so on and I, I thought it did add a lot to that season hard to argue in retrospect that it wasn't very inflated compared to you know he ends up being some like early jury boot and then uh, cements his spot on a returning season almost just through the strength of his edit alone um and so yeah i, I don't think that this boot was a surprise and i i kind of like that we got to correct or overcorrect a little bit for that uh that, that exaggeration the first time yeah for sure uh and i i'm guessing most people hearing us or at least plenty of people hearing us are aware of this vetus upon being the first boot as it turns out dom as soon as the game was over for him just could not bear to be away from his child for any longer i uh, didn't seem to be that big of an issue before things went sideways for him but i uh, like hey now yeah i i don't know how even he was able to make this happen but vetus somehow coerced the producers into letting him leave uh and the way that ultimately played out is vetus went back to america like straight away so he could be with his kid and i don't i don't know the exact like date and time or whatever but at some point liked a post on instagram that people were able to see him like and thankfully i didn't know that this had happened until after i had seen him voted out uh and at that point the floodgates kind of opened on the fact that it had basically been known for quite some time that vetus would not do well on this season because clearly he was back in control of his Instagram account long before the season was actually even done filming there. Uh, and I think Vetus, in his final words, echoes a sentiment that I'm guessing he is not alone in feeling, not only on this season, but in plenty of returnee seasons along the way. Uh, you know, you've already talked about the dis disillusionment that a lot of people who went deep on this season seem to, or, or the Max Dawson of the world who didn't even make it on, I. Uh, seemed to feel at one point whenever it was in their individual cases along the way vetus in his final words is included saying i went in saying to myself i'd rather not get picked at all than get picked and be the first boot end quote and i'm guessing particularly among people who like return to survivor that that is a very common sentiment like i'm guessing sierra sierra easton if she could do it all over never even would have gone back to Game Changers knowing how it was ultimately going to play out for her. But I was wondering, when it comes to first boots on regular seasons of Survivor where it's all new players, I would imagine, I'm sure plenty of them wish they had never gone out in the first place and like never even heard of the show or been recruited or whatever. But I would guess that plenty of first boots along the way as well were very happy to have gotten their chance, and yeah, it didn't go their way, uh, but they would never, you know, take back the adventure and the experience and getting to say that they were on their favorite show or one of their favorite shows, whatever the case may be. What do you think, if you had to just kind of like 
eyeball it. What do you think that ratio is, Dom, of like oh, only talking about newbie seasons? I feel like it's a a surprising percentage of new player first boots who seem to take it pretty well. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I think there is a a big portion of them who don't get remembered as such because our attention is more focused on the Jacob Derwins and such for whom being the first boot was such a, an emotionally scarring experience. I think there are a lot of people who maybe were not that invested in Survivor in the first place who are very happy to enjoy their 15 minutes and to enjoy their their free uh, pre-jury vacation out in Australia or what have you. Um, and that's a really fun, unique memory that they get to have. And then they, they go back to their life and they make the best of it. Um, maybe less so these days where they explicitly try to cast as many super fans as possible. And so it is close to a certainty that the first boot will be someone who really cared about being on Survivor and who really is not going to be happy about being the first boot. But I guess that's part of the downside of this new uh, casting system. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, and obviously there is no real way of knowing the even rough split of how that actually like plays out in the minds of the first boots on newbie seasons. But I do feel like uh, they, generally speaking, have done well at uh, casting people who wound up as the first boot and still were happy to have gone out on the season in the first place, which I feel like among like the general population, or at least the survivor applying population is a, is a tougher order than it may seem like on paper there. Uh, But one way or another, that is going to be the end of Vetus here on this season. He's actually going to leave by a vote of six to four, which is a lot closer than I feel like the edit made it look like it was going to be there where we have, Terry, Kelly Wigglesworth, and Wu on the wrong side of the vote here. And I actually uh, bring that up to make a point I am positive we made in real time, but I think in rewatching this premiere, it really stuck out to me again that Wu jumps off the page to me as someone who is a very clear example of old school versus new school having very little to do, honestly, with the season in which you first played and much more just being about one's philosophy towards the game. Like, I would say Wu, even though he played on Kageyan his first time, which is one of the most, like, prototypical, new school, fluid, dynamic, tons of, like, super active and aggressive players out there scheming 24-7, I think Wu is very clearly, like, an old-school kind of mentality, just wants to build bonds with people, make it through the next vote, and see, you know, let the chips fall where they may and i think he is a perfect fit with like terry and like kelly wigglesworth whereas jeff varner who played hadn't played survivor since 2000 or 2001 whatever it was uh unfortunately my formula is not going to do me any good these days (laughs) jeff varner i would say is clearly like a new school minded player and that to me is always what new school versus old school is going to come down to yeah i think that's all all right and in age terms, Wu is older than one might think just at first glance, but also, yeah, he philosophically or vibes wise, I suppose, is very much an old school player. And um, it, it does, as you mentioned, it kind of goes the other way too. You have some of the, Varna's the extreme example, but some of the uh, early to mid schoolers who get this second chance and who really want to make the most of it and embrace that shift in what the game had become. You actually did see some of this in Game Changers too, but I think by the end, you had this quite clear new school versus old school division, where on the one hand, you have like Brad and Ty and Troy Zan, and then on the other hand, you have uh, like the 
Sari, Andrea, Zeke block, where it's all about voting blocks and trust clusters and God knows what else. And I think Sarah's success in that season where she was able to straddle that divide and be who she needed to be to each of those groups so effectively um, and kind of play those groups off against each other that she she navigated that dynamic the best. And uh, this will be the only good thing I will say about Sarah Lucene here. She, she deserved the win for that. I mean, I think Sarah in both Game Changers and Winners at War, identified essentially what we were talking about earlier with Keith Nail just wanting to be loyal and hopefully go far in the game and not really care about winning in particular all that much. I think in the form of both Troy Zan on Game Changers and Ben on Winners at War, those were like, absolutely paramount relationships to have working in her favor where they were very happy as long as it meant they got to go far in the game they were totally down with losing to sarah and that is a immensely mm-hmm. valuable perhaps the most valuable thing you can have uh going for you in a season and i think jeremy would get to that point with tasha over the course of this one as well where she was totally had she i think at a certain point realized i'm going to lose to jeremy if we're in the end together and that's fine yeah absolutely yeah all right uh so that i think dom is going to do it for the ins and outs of episode one uh a couple other things to get here this week's better known episode title quote second chance end quote dominic this has got to be oh my god this is as meaningless as this segment has always been in literally every single instance leading up to this this is the first time i've ever take i'm ever taking better known episode title seriously do better, Survivor producers. I mean, I, I don't need it to be a home run every single time, but at least give me something that's a quote if that's going to be the format. And I definitely don't I definitely don't doubt that somewhere along the way, many people gave the quote second chance. And I do understand that that is very much in line with the theme of the season. It's the literal theme of the season. But this felt like an all time phoning in of an episode title uh and i i am willing to put it out there as much fun as i've had watching this premiere again and as excited as i am to uh continue along episode by episode in this entire season this better know an episode title is a real downer and i'm i'll say this is the worst episode title of all time that we have ever covered (laughs) They can't all be winners, and I guess the theme of Second Chance is none of them are winners. That's why we're here, so it's uh, very appropriate. Okay, I I will accept that spin zone as uh, a slight improvement on this episode title, but uh, eyebrow raised at whoever uh, decided that this was the one to go for, and then Dom... Do better. Yes, for sure. Finally, Dominic, uh, and I'm guessing many out there after... Many who have heard our uh, coverage of the last season we did, uh, Micronesia where it was airing for i think like the only time in the history of survivor alongside a season of big brother because it was the writer's strike point and so they were doing a winter season uh on top of the summer seasons that they normally do of big brother good news for all the people who hated this week in big brother 9 history yes big brother 17 history is going to be back for cambodia however uh as actually already previously mentioned in this podcast it's only going to be back for this week. Uh, Dom, this week in Big Brother 17 history, Steve Moses was the winner of Big Brother 17 on the same night that Cambodia premiered, and that is going to do it for the entire segment of this week in Big Brother 17 history. Yeah, and there was much rejoicing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that 
BB-17 is an interesting one to look back upon because I think at the time it was seen as, okay, this was a, a fun season of Big Brother, but could maybe aim higher, not one of the all-time greats, but uh, yeah, let, let, that's solid. Let's see what we get uh, next year. And then what we got next year and the year after that and the year after that, I, there were a few decent seasons in there, but since 17, honestly, so since uh, 2015, it's really been more misses than hits, I think the general perception would be. And so I think the the, the reputation of BB like just only blossomed with time. And this is seen now as like, we didn't know how good we had it when we were, you know, uh, muted in our praise of it uh, in the moment. Yeah, so BB-16 was one that I just stuck out to the bitter end, and God knows why, because that was a bad decision. And BB-17, I actually bailed on, like, midway through. I don't remember when or why, but I was just not feeling it, uh, and then went like an idiot back and put my hand on the hot stove for both BB-18 and BB-19, uh, and then quit. I've never seen another episode to speak of uh, from BB-19 forward other than the early weeks of uh, 22, I think, was the all-star season, and that I was only watching because Ian was on it. Uh, but I agree with you. I feel like BB-17 these days is one that a lot of people who still continue to be big fans of the show would hold up as like a, a victory of modern era Big Brother when in the moment it was one that I was bailing on in real time. I, I may, If I were, I'll put it this way, if I were, to go back and watch seasons of Big Brother Seven, uh, seasons of Big Brother from more recent years that I either bailed on or didn't watch at all, I for one reason or another, I think BB Seventeen would be one of them, and BB Twenty. I've heard people say a lot of really yeah. good things about, but other than that, I have never once regretted quitting Big Brother. Well, well then you also have seasons like Twenty Four, where. Taylor's win is seen as by a lot of people as one of the the all-time great reality TV moments and her her arc of being the outsider being ostracized and then coming back to to get her revenge on all of them is this amazing season-long arc which if you were watching it for the first few weeks and you were so turned off by it that you quit there and then hard to say that you made a bad decision and yet you missed out on this thing that took so long to come to fruition but I, I think this is one thing that really holds the franchise back for our purposes is that it is so unrewatchable past a certain point, I guess, in, in the modern era where, like, I enjoyed rewatching BB10, BB All Stars. If we if we do more, then I, I'm excited to do more. Um, but it's it's such a commitment uh, to to go back and watch the the episodes, which themselves are like very poorly constructed and put together, and then once you've slogged through. 25 plus uh 40 minute episodes of tv where the, the competitions kind of suck a lot of the time and there's just it's so many of the confessionals are like repetitive yelling just like beam directly at your ears it, you suck through all of that and you realize you only saw a small fraction a tiny fraction of what was relevant to the season and if you have been uh passively observing any kind of a big brother commentary as a season is airing you will see how much of it is why are they not showing this? Why do they spend 10 minutes on this dumb segment or this gimmick instead of this this parachute that was bubbling uh, within the house? And so why would you go back and watch a season where it's, it's long, it's boring, it's bad, and it's inaccurate? Like, and there's no redeeming feature on top of that. And for the record, I, I'm very much uh, at fault here. 
BB24 is another one that certainly I've heard many people say uh, a lot of very good things about. I did not even begin watching BB24, but that would probably be on that same list for me of like, I'm not going to do this, but if I were forced or paid to go back and watch uh, a season of Big Brother, for example, yeah. Well, I don't think that's happening. Uh, but if I <laughs> if I were seventeen, twenty, and of course twenty four would be on the list. I had just forgotten entirely about uh, the the story of twenty four because I didn't see any of it. Uh, but that is another one that I that I would say will probably be held up by Big Brother fans for a long time as like a victory of the the modern era. But for me, it really is. Uh, certainly plenty of the things that you listed, but the number one by a mile for me in what turned me off from Big Brother is, and I can't believe this, by the way, given how deeply, like, offended I felt by so many of the, like, twists and just game design decisions over the years, and that was largely what we were complaining about uh, back near the tail end of when we were covering the show in real time. I, For me, though the number one thing that is like really making me not want to watch big brother anymore. And I'm so sorry to all the, the people who are just hearing us pile on big brother at the end of this otherwise very fun and uh, happy podcast is the confessionals are just so unwatchable for me uh, and have been for many, many years. And I don't see that being something that I'm going to have an easier time with even knowing that uh, our hero Taylor is going to win the season or uh, who are whatever the case may be on any of these uh, other seasons that are well regarded. But either way, Dom, uh, with our big brother bashing out of the way, anything else that you want to get to uh, as far as the Cambodia premiere is concerned? Uh, no, that does it for me. Uh, like I said, good premiere. Uh, I, I think I enjoyed it at the time. I don't know how much of that was just hype to finally see so many of these people back and still riding on that high of that, that amazing opening. But yeah, good, solid premiere. And I think you you see over the course of the season how they build on some parts of that foundation and just neglect the others. But I guess we will see that again for ourselves uh, over the next few weeks. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, That is going to do it for us here. And if you were hearing this on the main feed, that is going to do it for us uh, on this episode, which was pieced together with the pregame episode uh, entirely. If you would like to continue with us down this Cambodia rewatch it is patreon.com slash Dom and Colin, uh, where we are going to be doing the rest of all of this. And on top of that, uh, many, many, many old complete season rewatches up there as well. Uh, if you have whatever, a few hundred hours to kill uh, and need some additional podcast content, patreon.com slash Dom and Colin. All right. That is going to do it for us here. He is on Twitter at Dom HRV. I am on Twitter at Colin Stone. One more time. Very disappointed in myself and Dom for piling on Big Brother at the end there. Hashtag let people enjoy things. That, though, is going to do it for us here today. Take care, everybody.